T-shirt, Cohen. Look at that. Especially for you. I know. Unfortunately, this is going to be an audio only, John. Sorry about that. You you should have said. You should have said. I did. (laughs) I just did. (laughs) You can't see what I'm wearing. I'm wearing my Barbenheimer T-shirt. Where did you get that? That, That's yeah. That's pretty cool. I was. I was. I was given that. Um, Oh, nice. I was. I'll, I'll take. I'll take all my paraphernalia off. Yeah, you got Barbenheimer shirt. You got it now. Is that the Oppenheimer hat, or is that an Indiana Indiana Jones hat? That's, that's an Indiana Jones hat that I was um, given courtesy of, um, unfortunately, being involved in the last film, which we won't talk about because I've decided I want to become obviously a bumper repairman. I think now, actually. I was, <laughs> Yeah, but now I don't wish that on anybody because I walk I outside so in the cold and the heat. <laughs> I am so depressed by the state of the film industry. I've been in this industry thirty six years, and I've never seen it so in turbulence. Um, oh. I mean, not not to, not to try. You can I can get out my small the smallest fiddle in the world now, and basically, I don't think anybody in the film industry really has had a pay rise since two thousand and one. In 2001, we all thought we were earning a lot of money. Uh, yeah, and it, money, we're not. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's what it is. Honestly, I hate to say it, it's the same here for me because I just do my, I do what I do. And like, so I've been doing this since 97 cost of, cost of a gallon of paint, for instance, that I use back then was maybe a hundred and $110 for a gallon of the paint. It's, it's automotive paint. Now it's like 700 bucks back then I was charging $125 a bumper. Now 155 percentages don't add up. <laughs> no, no, I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> we're, all, we're all getting poor. I mean, I mean, luckily 4k discs are actually cheaper than their equivalent laser discs that were like 250, $300 a second. Oh my God, John, do you know how many times I've said that to people about like the cost of stuff now and how great home theater is now? Because when you, it, 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 never mind adjusting for inflation, just the prices back in the eighties into the nineties, the numbers were bigger. Never mind adjust for inflation. Laser discs were 30 to 50, maybe $60 easy, right? So average was about 40 bucks. Yeah. Th- there's no average DVD, Blu-ray or anything at $40 now. They're all, yeah. The average is like 24 between 4K and a Blu-ray, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, I mean it's, cra- it's crazy. When I was a kid, in 1977... The Atari game system, the cartridges in the UK were forty pounds each, and a VHS pre-recorded tape was a hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know that about the UK, but yeah, I, I can adjust over here. Same exact thing. It's crazy. I think, I, think the, I think in the states, my recollection is it was usually a dollar for pounds. So in the in the states, they're usually a hundred dollars a tape. Yeah. So, I mean, for years, I mean, I've 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 spent a lot of time in in the US and a lot and a lot of time here. Um, it's interesting. I I always been in the film industry i've never really been in any other industry and it's funny i worked my way across the us and every time i 
was in the US. Everyone said, you know where you should be? And it's like, where's that? In the UK. It's like, well, funny, that's where I just came from. <laughs> that's why I'm back here now, because like all the films that they're making from Hollywood are all roughly made here in the UK. So it's like, well, you know, other than traveling backwards and forwards there occasionally a couple of times a year, it might as well just stay here. Um, so what, yeah. what's your take? Well, let me, before we get into that, let me let everybody know. Yeah, we are going to be talking Oppenheimer. Uh, John and I, we're going to talk spoilers of Oppenheimer, but I'm going to let everybody know. We'll let everybody know when we get to that. And you can pause. If you haven't seen it yet, you can pause and everything. But we're going to we're going to get into a lot today. I just want to let everybody know we will get to Oppenheimer spoilers and all that fun stuff. But um, but yeah, what do you so what's your take? I you know, obviously, way more than I know about the inside and everything. I have my opinions on it. Um, some might surprise people, some might not. But what's your take on everything that's going on right now? Well, basically, it's the it's the same old story. It's that those who have money want more money. Prices are getting squeezed um, foolishly. The industry has made this decision, this fool's errand, that streaming is going to be the um, thing that's going to provide them the future, which actually anybody looking at it, I mean, a lot of people criticize it. I always describe it as an all-you-can-eat buffet, but you can't make any money on an all-you-can-eat buffet. You know, <laughs> we have a binge out, and, and usually the food is of a lower quality. I mean, at the moment, they're trying to, they're trying to stimulate everybody by getting them in through the door by these ridiculously overpriced productions. You know, I mean, Amazon spent a billion dollars on a Lord of the Rings reboot that was absolutely horrendous. Um, yeah, I did. <laughs> compared to his competition, yeah, but compared to his competition, it was yeah. Hmm. yeah. I mean, I think it got back to horrendously, but there's no no way that anything that cost a billion dollars is ever going to be profitable. You know, profitable. I mean, that's the thing. It's like. It's like if you look at all these things, it's like the the the, the rather unfortunate news from the last uh, day or so is that um, Disney are pulling out of physical media in uh, Australia. Um, you know, and I can see I can see reasons for that, but also I can see reasons that maybe they're trying to stimulate uh, streaming. Um, but that's not going to work. It's like ultimately, you know, as I've always said about streaming, is it plateaus, and then what do you do? Then all you got to do is put the prices up. Then you got to create multiple mm. tiers. Yeah, and then you start creating more tiers, more elite tiers, and elite elite tiers, and right. you know what ends up is end up in tiers um, for the users and the people who are um, you know involved in it. Yeah. I, I look how much Disney have spent on productions in the last couple of years. You know now, which like things like Willow, which they've gone and deleted, which I think is absolutely crazy to actually have. Is that produced. one of the ones that got deleted from like? Yeah, yeah, Willow, the new one. Yeah doesn't exist anymore yeah i mean that's absolute craziness i mean to, to create something as a, as a flagship showrunner as willow and then basically just dump it a couple of months later yeah um, i know my buddy J john on the pot my co-host on the podcast said he saw it he wasn't crazy about it i think at the beginning he kind of liked it and then all of a sudden he was like a couple episodes in he was it wasn't very good if i remember right but i you know what's funny is what do you think? I love your analogy. I've never heard streaming is like an all you can eat buffet, uh, but it, it, that's a, a really good analogy. And the yeah, problem I mean, is there's with an all you can eat buffet, there's a lot of waste. 
Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing now. And I, I mean, you obviously, you know, better than me, but the, I think in, in any kind of artistic endeavor, there is a lot of waste. There's a, always been a lot of stuff thrown to the sides. We just didn't know about it. I think things are a lot more public now. No. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm surprised they haven't learned from Spotify because I think Spotify, mm. something like only 7% of the entire library is listened to. 93, yeah. 93% of the Spotify library, nobody listens to. You can actually get apps that will actually find you the most, um, the, the, the least the listened least. to. Yeah, the least listened to to try and create you an interesting playlist of music you've never heard of. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's right really. Right Home Theater might show up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, the thing is that the world seems to think digital will be its savior, but in fact, actually, it's a false savior. It's you know, it's a streaming. You mean? Yeah, but I mean, di digital in general, it's it's a false, it's a false paradigm to think that you're going to be saved by this this or the machines will save you i mean yeah was anybody any more happy or less happy in the 1970s no i think probably people were slightly happier um well i think it's all relative yeah i mean really it is all relative it's uh, we had three channels at least over here <laughs> we had three channels we had i mean it, you look back and we laugh but we in, we enjoyed it. We had a great yeah. time talking with your friends about the shows on the night before and or whatever. Or, but now it's if there's just like you said, it's it's just there's so much stuff available to you. There is going to be a lot of waste, and I, I mean I don't know. That, can you go back? You can't. You can't go backwards. You can, you can never go backwards, but you've got to go forwards in a constructive manner. I mean, that's the thing. And the trouble is, everyone tends to throw everything away as they do it. I mean, you go to a supermarket now. I mean, you you could do the job of the cashier yourself. You know, suddenly, oh, yeah. suddenly, when did I become a cashier? Well, yeah, you know, my my working for you is saving the supermarket money. Why should I be doing that? Yeah, I mean, this whole technology, unfortunately, is being manipulated into the worst possible scenario, which is is to make those who have the money even more money. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't need to sound like some kind of political rant, but I mean, I do, yeah, I do believe in people getting paid well for doing a great job. Yeah, um, but then some people get paid so much money that it's it's obscene. Um, right. Yeah. Well, and um, but that's the thing is, if you're in demand. You're going to get paid obscene money. And that that's, you know, that's kind of the, it, like I said about my job, it's the demand isn't there for me to raise my prices. I I'd like to, but the demand isn't there. They can just say, I'll just go, I'll go, I'll send it. To, I have to do, I have to regulate my prices. I have to be lower than say a body shop, because if I get any closer to a body shop, they're going to compare my work to sending it to a body shop where I work outside. So, you know what I mean? So you always, you're always looking at how you're comparing what your market is. So I, I just, I, I, in, and like to your cashier thing, it's like, I can have nobody do it and you ring yourself out or I can pay a cashier to stand there, which is like, why do that? You know? And 
I mean, we're doing the same thing with robots. We're automating, you know, production lines with robots. They've been doing that for years and years and years. You know, the assembly line invented long before robots. That did a lot, right? Because now you could take a certain amount of people, putting them in a row, and they assemble it, bang. And it, I mean, there's always innovations and, you know, progress, but. Yeah. And people fall by the way, or jobs, I should say, not people. Jobs fall by the wayside, and now you have to adapt and and do something else. If who wanted to grow up and become a cashier full time, not many. No, I can, I, can, I, can, I can I can understand that, but it, it's, what, what digital technology should should do is inspire people, and I don't see many people being inspired. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, you and I, and a lot of the people who listen to this podcast and are involved in the world we're in are incredibly inspired by what we do and what we're involved with. Right. But I mean, that, that, that gives us a, a, you know, a great purpose, but there's a lot of people who seem to have lost their purpose in life. And I, I just see, you know, Facebook, TikTok, you know, Snapchat, whatever it is, just, it's just ever decreasing circle on, you know, making people more and more unhappy. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I mean, can I get too depressed? But I mean, I mean, technology is is also a wonderful thing. I mean, the fact that yeah. we can have a you know, a little shiny disc with a four K movie on it is is quite something, and I hope that, that that will last for some time. I mean, I I think as as collectors that will that market will 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 continue for quite quite some time now. Um, so, I, I think the four K is going to last longer than any of the others. Obviously, yeah, VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, Blu-ray. I think 4K with, unless, I mean, I can't say the discs themselves will stand up any longer because we could come out with a new code, audio codec or something, right? Maybe they upgrade that and then you'd need to buy another version. But I think our picture quality I mean, I, we, we've been speculating for a long time. It's like, we're at the point of like diminishing, not diminishing returns. We can't see any more pixels. We literally can't. So where do we improve from here? And it could be the HDR. I mean, maybe they get improved HDR. So, uh, they'll come up with something because they're always looking to sell us a new disc, like five, 10 years from oh, now, yeah. they're going to be looking to do it. I mean, yeah, that, that, that has been the, I mean, unfortunately the, the, the people in the, in the digital realm of the studios, don't seem to understand that, that literally that the studios have made, I mean, how many times have you bought the same film over and over again? I was thinking this the other day, I was going to collect all the different versions of the same film I got. Yeah. I mean, even, even on like 4k, I think I might've bought something, one or two things twice because they've been re-released in a slightly better format or, you know, I'm, I'm getting more and more. I mean, it's really funny. Obviously, as I get older, I'm getting more and more into collecting, and I'm more into the the covers and the artwork and the and I, I, know, I know our friend um, Steve does. He's not really into this, but I really love slip covers. I think the slip covers make a huge difference. <laughs> they make it attractive. They make it something desirable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know. I've I've been into that. I'm kind of getting away from that a little bit. Um, I was into that very early on, like getting the best looking one, or if there's multiple, uh, and I like them all, I'd buy them all different covers. Um, but it, it's, I'm more right now. I'm just trying, I'm getting closer to like Steve and buying less and less, but of course I also have the Kaleidoscape. So I just buy it on that. And then I'm, there you go. It's like, I don't, you know, but I still do collect. 
I do, I do think Kaleidoscape, in some respects, is potentially the future. But it, it, it it's interesting because there's only two countries it's available in. Well, it's three. It's actually available in three three domains. It's in the United States, England, and yachts. If you're in the international waters on a yacht, you can have one. <laughs> yachts. It's you're. I mean, I've never heard anybody put it that way, but you're 100 percent right. It's like the th- actually the funny thing is with the Kaleidoscape, it could be it when you use the yacht example it can be available anywhere you just have to actually import it and then you bring and that's why it works on a yacht is you download everything to it upload all of your movies to it now you have this hard drive and then you can go off and top of everest and watch a movie if you bring your whole system with you but you know that's the idea of it but i do i do think that it could be a version of that i think is going to be the future i've been saying it for a long time even our movies insta or our regular show content i've said you could actually like imagine if the local network like out here i'd say cbs network they downloaded the entire week's content of prime time on sunday night at 2 a.m to your system at your house and then it's just flagged to go off at 8 p.m. You've got access to this show and you could have top quality. It's not streamed. It's literally downloaded to your system. I mean, it. it I, this isn't my idea. I heard about this idea, God, 10 years ago, where everything, instead of streaming it, it would download to your system. And then the following week, the next set of, you know, the next prime time would come in and go over top of that. So you wouldn't even have to, if you wanted to save a show, you could, but you'd have hard drives or whatever, but there there's multiple ways to improve quality with, and by, by, you know, get around the streaming issue. Well, I mean, I mean, the, the kaleidoscape is one of the potentials of how quality could improve. Cause actually you can increase the bit rate quite easily on kaleidoscape. It's not limited by any, particular bandwidth other than the um network that it's running on yeah it's uh, our network yeah. yeah whereas whereas discs are basically capped out at about 110 megabits per second um yeah and there's a limited you know limited amount of how how much you can get on for a certain space um i mean i, I was involved with the development of digital cinema in Hollywood and initially the bandwidth that we came up with originally back in 2005 was 300 megabits per second, which these days is absolutely nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And if you think about it, a lot of films that are being released now in 4K are actually inside the same container as a 2K movie that was at 300 megabits per second. Fortunately, they've increased the bandwidth recently because it's all about backwards compatibility and how many units are in the field. But, you know, it's it's interesting that well, I, I pointed this out quite a few times that actually a 4K disc, well encoded. I mean, somebody like David McKenzie, um, who's an incredible um, authoring master um, at his uh, company, which I'm trying to think of his name of his company at the moment. Um, he he is very good, and I, I would say if it's encoded correctly on a 4K disc, you can actually get a better picture than you can on the DCP because the DCP is not um, interframe encoded; it's frame based encoded. So actually, there's a lot of bandwidth being thrown away. Wow! So, phew, <laughs> over my head, 
That's that's a lot of stuff. Basically, put it simply: if you do a 4K disc properly, you should potentially get a better picture. I mean, even though, yeah, even a picture than film. You're saying like no, the DCP, a DCP, because a DCP oh, okay. is a DCP is um, 12 bits. Dolby Vision is also 12 bits. Um, if it's done properly on a on a Blu-ray disc, um, okay, the color on uh, a Blu-ray, a 4K Blu-ray disc is four two zero, which means you've got 4K luminance, as in 4K detail, but right. HD color, which is, I think most people realize is actually on a, the 4K picture you're watching has only got 4K detail. The rest of it is actually HD, so you've got HD color, um, which most people don't realize actually when they're watching a Blu-ray is you've only got um, HD detail and you've got standard definition color um and a blu-ray is only eight bits so it's even less um and it's not as effectively encoded because a um, 4k disc is done in pq encoding which is a very efficient um way of uh, managing the bits and 12-bit pq is very very efficient um yeah i mean they made the decision in cinema to go 12 bits for um because they looked at print film a release a 35 mil release print and when it has about the dynamic range of about 12 bits, so they settled on 12 bits. I mean, a, a, an original camera negative has much, much higher dynamic range than that, but a release print, I mean, yeah, it's quite unfortunate how, I mean, the, the thing the film was had, it had great dynamic range, but it was never particularly good on resolution when it came to um, multiple copies of it. You know, the original source negative has got amazing resolution, but the final release print, I mean, you're probably looking only slightly better than standard definition. I was just um, going to say, isn't that where you run into a, with like a copy of a copy of a copy? You're you're yeah. losing resolution every time. Yeah, and I mean that was that was well, towards the end of the. I mean, like films like Harry Potter. I worked on a couple of the Harry Potter films. The when they got into doing digital intermediates, because that suddenly became the the in thing to do in because there's so many digital shots that it was easy to do it in the electronic domain. But actually what you did is you made a first generation negative. So things like the Harry Potter films, each print was actually struck off a first generation negative because you just made multiple first, you just shot out multiple first generation negatives. It was easier. Uh, and he kept the quality. I mean, towards the end of film, yeah, 2011, 2012 in cinemas, the quality was actually pretty good. Um, but it was like all these things. It was a little too late. Um, yeah, I mean... The, the thing about DCI was very interesting, DCI Digital Cinema Initiatives, because they sat there and I was involved with them. We sat there watching lots of different things. And my friend, who's unfortunately no longer is with us, Jim Whittlesey, who was at the Pacific Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard where they did all the testing. He used to day, go in day in, day out and run film against digital, do comparisons, make notes, write all this up. And then, of course, obviously, all his notes then got put before a committee of the six studios and then went and you know, all, all had their own opinions on what it should be. But, you know, fortunately, they had some very good people there who uh, managed to... Um, you know, it, it, it was the, the job of being in charge of DCI was known as dead man's shoes because you were going to basically piss everybody off. So you'd probably never work in the industry ever again. Um, and the guy, the guy who was in charge was a guy called Chuck Goldwater who came from exhibition. He was a lovely guy. Um, and also Walt Oldway was the CTO, and, and neither of which I don't think have ever worked in the business ever again. Oh. Um, you know, and Howard Luck who was the the uh, the other guy who was in charge of technology there i mean he's now in england and he's learning um arts and literature um yeah so it literally was a dead man's job i think i'm probably the only one still involved in the film industry jeez so uh, like, 
let's let everybody know, like what it, you said, Harry Potter, like what, for instance, did you do on Harry Potter? Your history in the film, you know, your history. Well, let's, let's, go back, let's go back to the beginning. Originally, originally back in the, the, when I, when I started out, I, like everybody, I either wanted to be an actor or a director. And I thought that was the way to be. Um, and I got more and more interested in the technical side as I went along. Cause I liked showing films. I liked watching films. I liked filming films. I did stuff on Super 8 and everything. And I started making lots of home movies. And then I wanted to get in the film industry. And there was a thing in England called, um, job fit, which was an original scheme to try and get trainees into the film industry. So I, I applied for that and I went for an interview. She's like many, many, too many years ago. Um, and the guy interviewed me. It was very interesting. It was a guy called Terry Rawlings who edited Blade Runner. No. Um, you know, um, interesting at the time when I, when he was talking to me, it was only afterwards, I, 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 he sort of dawned on me who he was because at the time I probably would have not have been able to speak to him so um, eloquently at the time. But <laughs> I remember afterwards he said, it was interesting. It was probably the most positive, negative comment anyone's ever given me. He said, it's a, the thing is about this, John, is, yeah, you're, you're sort of in some ways ideal for what we're doing here, but actually you're too good. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to put you on this, this, this scheme because actually you don't need it. And you actually, you need, you need a break with somebody else. Um, yeah, you don't need to do a trainee apprenticeship like this. And I went, oh, okay. Thanks. Great. Wonderful. Thanks. Okay. So you're telling me I'm too good to get the job. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I literally, um, yeah, I was a bit depressed by that, and I went and joined a film workshop and learned all about 16 mil and shooting 16 mil and shot lots of independent films and worked with some interesting people and met some interesting people doing that. Um, and then I went to a lecture at the National Film Theatre in London, which is on the South Bank, um, and it was being given by a guy called Ozzy Morris, who's a phenomenal cinematographer. He won an Oscar for Fiddler on the Roof. He shot The Guns of Navarone, Moby Dick, Moulin Rouge, um, Dark Crystal... Um, I mean, the, 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 yeah, the guy, the guy was, was considered to be a god in the industry. So I went to see him speak. And afterwards, I said, I'd love to talk to you about and if I can get any ideas about how to get in this industry. And he said, well, I can't do that now, but I'll give you my address and you write to me. So I wrote him a letter and I thought I'd never hear anything of it. So about two months later, I get a, a letter saying, would you like to come down for um, uh, afternoon tea at, at my house in Dorset? Like, oh. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I, I worked out how to get there. And it's like Dorset's like, you know, not exactly the easiest place to get to. It's on the south coast of England. Um, funny enough, it's, where he lived, it was a place called Fontwell Magna. It was right next to a um, place called Shaftesbury, which most people either know or don't know. But Shaftesbury, if you ever visit England, is one of the most beautiful places you should go. But it was famous because Ridley Scott used it for a Hovis commercial because it looks like something out of the Victorian era. It's a beautiful hill. Um, so I went down, went through Shaftesbury, saw the wonderful hill, um, and went and visited him and sat there and, uh, his wife, Leah, um, uh, made us lunch and I sat there talking to him and I showed him stuff that I'd done and we spent, you know, four or five hours talking and I thought, okay, interesting. And I thought, well, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. He said, and the end of it, yeah, again, he said, I'm retired now. So there's not a lot I can do because he retired in 1982. Um, I oh, know. Um, uh, they're very hierarchical, like they're in the military, people in the British film industry. He goes, guy who used to be my camera operator. He would really, I think he'd be perfect to help you. Guy called Freddie Francis. 
I'll give you Freddie's number. I'll ring him up and I'll set it up and you can go and have lunch with him. And I thought, oh, great, I'm just going to spend my entire life having lunch. Um, <laughs> so I, um, um, so thank you very much. Um, you know, took the phone number. Um, Ozzy rang a couple of days later and said, yes, I've spoken to Freddie. So if you give him a call, it'll all be so. So I ring up Freddie and Freddie goes, yes, yes, I'd love you to come out and um, see me. Come and have lunch with me. Oh, great. I was like, <laughs> more lunch. Uh, but luckily, he was <laughs> in London in a place called Os- um, Oswestry, which is just basically um, Osterley, so Osterley, which is just um, it, sort of like West West London. And he had this beautiful house out there. Uh, I don't know how many people know Freddie, but Freddie Francis was a um, wonderful guy. Um, I mean, he originally won his first Oscar for shooting a film called Sons and Lovers that was directed by Jack Cardiff. Um and his second wife, um, Pamela, the man Francis, uh, used to be Steven Spielberg's assistant. So I did some research before I went. So I thought, I'm, 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 I'm with the right people here. So yeah, yeah. we, we see and had, had lunch. Um, and, um, I sat there chatting with them and it was like, oh, very, you know, very nice, very pleasant. And Freddie said, well, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in between films at the I'm not really sure. But then his wife turned around and said, well, I'm just about to start on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I might be able to get you on the second unit with Frank Marshall. And I went, yeah, okay. When do I start? Yeah. <laughs> so, so basically I went out to, um, I worked with a wonderful guy called Paul Beeson, who shot the second unit with Frank um, and Wally Byatt. They did all the sequences out in the Docklands for um, Indiana Jones um shooting that for um pretending to be venice the bit where the um the boat gets um cut up by uh the the propellers of the blade yeah. where um yeah I, I hung out and did quite a bit on that and then um fortunately after that um freddie was um asked because freddie had done some very interesting films he photographed the elephant man for david lynch he'd done dune for david lynch um and then he, I mean, he, and then he did, um, he did quite a few films. And he was doing a film. I'm trying to remember if it was before or afterwards. He did a film with Whoopi Goldberg called Clara's Heart, which he did out in America. Um, and I went out and joined him for a bit on that. Uh, that was fascinating. And then after, I think it was, I think it was before. I'm sure it was before. And then after that, he did a film with Ed Zwick called Glory, um, okay. which was something else. Um, we shot that on Jekyll Island. Um, on the east coast of the United States. Um, and there was Freddie and his camera officer, Gordon Heyman. Um, and it was a, a fascinating dynamic. I mean, the final battle sequence that was shot, I, they lit that from over a mile away. It was shot on a, a nature reserve. And it was quite funny because the woman around the island was very funny about having generators on this nature reserve because it would disturb the um, mating birds. But she didn't seem to have a problem with explosions going off. I can never quite understand that. It's like, so you have 200 men running down the beach with explosions going off, but you can't have a generator on this island. So Freddie lit it with a couple of Moscow lights over a mile away. Um, and it was, it was quite something. And, you know, Freddie fortunately won his second Oscar for glory. Um, and then his career took off uh, again. I mean, his career, I mean, he'd had an amazing career. Anyway, but his career took off again, and he got a whole load of films after that. And I mean, he did Cape Fear um, with Scorsese. Uh, I went along and did some stuff on that, um, which was fascinating. Which was interesting. That was with um, Frank's um, wife, Kathleen Kennedy, 
because I had a company at the time called Kennedy Marshall. Um, and then um, I'm trying to think what else happened. God, it's like going back to it's quite a long way here. <laughs> um, and then to cut a long story short, Freddie got asked by Bob Hoskins to do a film called Rainbow, um, which was the first digitally shot film, supposedly, even though some other people had done stuff and other people like Vittoria Storaro have always claimed other things. But this film with Rainbow with Bob Hoskins, which was slightly false advertising because Bob said it was always his, his directorial debut, and I was always like a bit confused because it's like, Bob, didn't you do a film called The Raggedy Rawney before that, which nobody ever saw, but then you've obviously forgotten about. <laughs> so it was shot in Canada, um, and it was using a Sony um, high-definition system. Um, and it was the first time anybody ever shot anything like this, and we're using recorders that were the size of filing cabinets or had umbilical cords. And I remember that, you know, the first thing, the Sony delivered these cameras, and the first thing that everybody did, we took them all apart and then sort of like, filmize them turn them into how a film unit would use them which much to sony's disgust it's like why have you done that what do you mean why doesn't the cameraman bend over and look through the viewfinder because it's uncomfortable to spend several hours bent forward that's why you stand at the back and look through a long viewfinder um yeah and things like this and it's like you know it was a fascinating thing of learning and i remember um it was produced by a guy who's actually still a very good friend of mine called gary smith um and we had a screening of it, and it was interesting because it was before anybody, yeah, motion interpolation or frame interpolation ever really existed, even though people I knew at Snell and Wilcox had been experimenting with it. Um, Sony made a 24-frame print from it, and their idea of how to make a 30-frame per second to 24 frames was to just cut every other frame out. Um, so there's this opening shot where it pans down over the skyline of Toronto, and if you ever see it in the cinema, it's like, judda, 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 judda. I don't know going, what the hell's happened here? It's like, well, because it's gone from 30 frames per second to 24. Um, and it's like, I learned such a lot on that. And, you know, then I got involved with um, Lucasfilm, THX Lucasfilm, because they were developing digital technology for the next Star Wars films. Um, and that was interesting because they... They had, Rick McCallum had a, a sort of, he knew how to negotiate with people and get them to listen. And he was very, very clever, Rick was. Um, and he really knew how to make people understand what they wanted. So he, he got uh, Sony to, to basically develop a 24 frame camera because Sony was still like going, why do you want 24 frames? Because that's what cinema is. But 30 is better. It's like, yeah, but. You know, nothing in the traditional mechanism of filmmaking is compatible with 30 frames per second. So we need 24, and it needs to be progressive. Why progressive? It's not very efficient because we don't like the look of interlaced. And it's like, it's like, it's like the, the Japanese were fascinated because they'd always like come back with something like, well, you know, yeah, why are you doing this? Because we can do it better. Yeah, right. it was always like, it's always going to be better. Um, and they spent a lot of time working with Francis Ford Coppola because he, he experimented a lot with digital technology, which I think Lucas had got the the pattern from was from Francis because he and Francis were very very close friends and, and allies. And yeah, George's career wouldn't have had one if it wasn't for um, mm. Francis. Um, yeah, I, I mean the the things that Lucasfilm have been responsible for. I mean they are they are almost the architects of the modern era. I mean like. Avid, yeah. Avid, Avid came out of Lucasfilm. It was called Edit Drone, and basically, the, yeah, George sold it on. Um, you know, George had a computer animation division. Um, 
you know, Lucas Digital, which he went and sold on to Steve Jobs, which later became Pixar. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the whole whole host of things. I mean, the computer game division he had was was fascinating. I mean, he got fascinated by the quality of reproduction of films in cinemas because he was so appalled as to how Star Wars had been sounded, so he created the THX program, um, which he employed a guy called um, Tom Tomlinson Holman. Um, who ultimately fell out with George because I'm not quite sure. It was like one of those things, like who had the bigger ego? Well, unfortunately, it's like George's, George's name is over the door, so um, bye-bye. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, there's loads of things as to why it's called THX. It's because like, actually, originally when, when Tomlinson Holman put the proposal forward, he put the Tomlinson Holman experiment, and George went, hey, look, that says THX. Um, wasn't there... Uh, the I was under the what's the uh, movie he did THX. Well, no, he, basically, to go all the way back. That's what I mean. His, his number plate in high school, which he had the car accident, was was THX eleven thirty eight. There you go. And, and, and he made, that was one of his first movies too, yeah. right? Small. He made a, he made a student film with um, Walter Murch. Um, yeah, Walter, Walter's incredible, but you know, Walter wrote it uh, with George, and they made this student film called THX eleven thirty eight. Mm-hmm. Which then, through Francis Ford Coppola, um, they managed to persuade Warner Brothers to finance it. Which, according to George, was the worst thing that ever happened because he, he hates Warner. George is one of these people that holds grudges for the rest of his life. So, literally, as far as he's concerned, Warner's are, are the ultimate evil. Um, so, you know, he, he, will, he will never work with them ever again under any circumstances. Um, so he he basically because they took the movie away from him and re-edited it without him, he basically fell out massively with um, Warner Brothers. Um, but yeah, that, literally, I think when, when he saw, he said on this, this proposal, Tomlinson Holman experiment in George's mind, he went, oh, that spells THX. That's one of my films. Right. Exactly. So, it, so it was kind of just like perfect, the perfect marriage right there. Right. And it's like, okay, oh, yeah. you can have your name. I got my movie. We're good. Yeah. You've got, you know, this guy called Tomlinson Holman, TH, and he created, he did an experiment, THX, put it down on a piece of paper and, oh, yeah. So, so, you know, George Lucas has got one of these minds that can see these patterns and went, oh, that's clever. That says THX. Um, and the THX division back then was incredible because they, they were, you know, if you had laser discs. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my, my friend Martin Jew used to work there. He was the, he was the laser disc, um, quality assurance program. Basically he had a room and he used to sit there watching all these laser discs all day. Wow. Um, that's why. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, he you know, um, Martin, 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 Martin was fascinating. I mean, like, yeah, his, his role is to how he, it's like, like everybody. I mean, you know, Martin, how he got to, um, Lucasfilm was quite interesting because he used to be a uh, Virgin flight attendant. <laughs> and um, when he landed in San Francisco, he met somebody who was working at Lucasfilm and said, oh, and they said, why don't you write to this person? And they said, you know, because he wanted to get in the film industry. So there's a whole ragtag bag of people that were like, yeah, but the, the one thing they all had a passion was the quality and, you know, the very best. Oh, um, so that's a, like... <laughs> like you, you, you go from being an airline attendant to just because you cared about, for all intents and purposes, home theater. No, yeah, like it, it's it, that's uh, what everybody was trying to get at. Well, he basically, he basically set up the the whole division with his boss, which hadn't he? A really nice guy. I love his name. Kurt Schwank, his name was. 
Um, <laughs> yes, I, I know. I know. I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure Kurt. Um, I mean, uh, the last time I saw Kurt, actually, I was standing outside um, Walt Disney's home entertainment division in Burbank, and I was going out, coming out, and he was going in. And that was the last time I saw him. And he was working for uh, NEC, I think, selling to do with digital projectors. Um, but uh, you know, um, but uh, you know, I, I basically after that got involved with a company in New York. Um, completely random story, and I probably shouldn't tell this, but I was at a party um, in in New York in the meatpacking district at a place called Mother's. Um, just to really a release of a film with Debbie Harry called Mother. Um, well, there you go. <laughs> and I was at the bar, uh, and I was sort of standing there, and I was sort of staring aimlessly into space. And this girl thought I was talking to her, or staring yeah. at her. So then she started talking to me, and she said, "I oh, will ask me what I'd be doing." So I, thought, oh. so I mentioned the whole. She says, "Star Wars, you should meet my roommate." Um, I'm like, okay, yeah. Um, Dave Anderson, he's the biggest Star Wars fan ever. So I went and met him. Yeah, again, had lunch with him. Never thought anything about it. And then six months later, I had this phone call, this email, um, saying, we're going to set up a whole new digital um, film studio in New York. We'd love you to be part of it. And I went, okay, got nothing to lose here. Um, so I um, got involved with them. And I mean, it was interesting. It was, it was financed by a guy who was one of the heads of Goldman Sachs, who had just made more money than God from it going private, um, a guy called Chip Seelig. Uh, and another guy who was an old-time um, movie distributor, um, a guy called Tom Grunberg. Um, and we set up this office on Fifth Avenue um, and tried to, and tried to sort of create the digital revolution. It was, quite, it was quite interesting, a company called Madstone, um, which basically... The, the saying was, you know, they have to be mad or stoned to work with us. <laughs> oh, and and we'd, we'd only been in business, I think, about three months, and we got sued by Spike Lee, who said really? that Mad Stone was his company. He'd invented that name, and uh, he took us to court and tried to sue us. Um, and uh, when he got to court, unfortunately, it fell apart because he's, he's saying, it's like, how did you have, um, how did you come up with this name then, Mr. Lee? He said, oh, I had it in a dream. Oh jeez! Okay. <laughs> anyway, we um we agreed to settle. Uh, we we, agreed, we 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 settled. I can't remember what the agreement was, but we ended up financing his film Crooklyn. <laughs> jeez! So he um, had a dream, and he got a settlement out of it. Good for him. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, I like I like I like Spike. He's a nice guy. He's a, he's a good he's a he's a good filmmaker. But he's like he's one of these things. He's a yeah. He's like a lot of people in the film industry. He's a rich kid playing playing at being a man of the people. Um, you okay. know, I mean, he, yeah, his his family are phenomenally wealthy. I mean, yeah, he's he's never known any kind of you know uh, hardship in his entire life. Um, but he's yeah, he's a good filmmaker. Um, yeah, and he, creative he, creative mind for sure. Creative mind. Um, yeah. um, but uh, you know, anyway, so then then. I got invited. Strange roundabout thing. I, I went went for a meeting at the London Film School um, because I wanted them to be involved with um, Madstone, and I went and met up with um, a guy I'd known for some time who was now in charge of the London Film School, a guy called Ben Gibson. Um, and Ben's a 
fascinating character. He'd formerly been head of BFI distribution and then produced quite a number of interesting sort of like noty art films. He'd been a major um, powerhouse behind Derek Jarman and people like that. So I went to see him. Yeah, again, I had lunch with him. Um, you got a lot of lunches. Yeah, they have to. This industry is all about going for lunch. Um, and for our lunch, she was like, because because unfortunately, Ben, I love him or hate him, as he would say, he's an old Trotsky, you know. Um, he's not really into capitalism in any way. And he, he didn't particularly like that I was involved with somebody from Goldman Sachs. And he said, well, the sort of people who should be involved are the sort of people who are going to be opposite you, setting this thing up called the Hospital Club. You need to meet this guy called Dave Stewart. I went, okay, what does he do? He said, he's some kind of musician. I thought, what, what, the Dave Stewart? And I went, oh, yeah, I presume so. I don't know how many Dave Stewarts there are. He says, okay, fine. So the next thing he sets up a meeting to, for me to go meet Dave Stewart. Um, and he's got an office not so far away in Dean Street. So I went and met with him, but I didn't actually meet with Dave Stewart because obviously I wasn't worthy. I met with one of his assistants who spent an hour grilling me and i thought okay this is just a just a, an information um plunder they're just they're just trying to work out what i know what i'm trying to work out what they know so anyways we sat and chatted pleasantly for about an hour and a bit yeah it was a nice place it was a he had offices in a post-production company um run by a guy called paul miller that was in a place called the old they're called the gargoyle club uh which if you ever watched the film operation mincemeat is where there was a very famous club in london called the gargoyle club which obviously had no longer anymore, and Paul had turned it into a post-production company. So I sat there in, in this place called the Gargoyle Club, having a you know a nice chat with him, and I thought, okay, that's you know nothing's gonna nothing's gonna come to this. I shake hands with this guy and walk off. But I was just about to leave, and then come bounding through the door comes Dave Stewart. And I thought, hmm, this was like some kind of test, wasn't it? <laughs> he's obviously been here all the time. He's waiting for his, his man to send him a text going, yeah, this guy's all right, or he's an idiot. So obviously I must have passed the test because then Dave comes bounding in um, the room and goes, how are you, John? How are you doing? He's like, he's like talking to me as if I was like his best friend as if I'd, I'd only just met him two seconds ago. He goes, oh, I'm just going off for dinner at the Ivy. Do you want to come with me? Because I'm going to take a mate of mine with me. And I'm like, okay. So he rings up his phone. He goes, oh, shake a shake a leg. And I went, who's that? He says, oh, it's a friend of mine. He makes films. You really love him. He's called Shaker Kapoor. And I went, what? Shaker Kapoor made the film Bandit Queen. Um, and he went, yeah, 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 just about to do a new film um, with Harvey Weinstein called The uh, Four Feathers. And I went, okay. So he went off to, to the Ivy, which at that point in time, the Ivy was the place to go. And ha yeah, literally to get in, you had to be somebody. So I felt completely out of place to start with. <laughs> um, I remember sitting there, um, Shaker turns up, um, and we're all sitting there waiting for a table to become available. And in walks Elizabeth Hurley with um, uh, Dennis Leary. Um, oh. and, and so Dennis goes off, um, to get a drink from the bar and, um, I, I stand up to, to, to move out the way to, um, to let her sit down. She goes, oh, no, don't worry. And then sits on my knee. I thought, this is a strange day. Five, 50 minutes ago, I didn't know Dave Stewart. Now I've got Elizabeth Hurley sitting on my knee. Um, it was a very bizarre day. I mean, you know. Liz Hurley was going, did you see pictures of me today in the mirror? God, aren't they appalling? And I'm thinking like, are they worthy? I don't know. <laughs> I'm oh. just happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, so anyway, so we went and had dinner and chatted and thing and, and okay, right. This, this, you know, nothing will ever get any better. So, so I said to Dave, yeah, we need to sit down and chat and talk again, um, see where we can go. So I thought, I'm going to leave it at that. So anyway, so I disappear off and then, um, a couple of days later, I got a phone call from Dave 
um, uh, which is just a bit bizarre. It's like, you know, oh, Dave Stewart on the phone. Um, and he goes, I'll come down to my house for the weekend. We'll, we'll, we'll play tennis. It's like, well, I don't play tennis, but never mind. Um, I'll go buy a racket. I went down to his house for the weekend for, um, to play tennis. Um, and he says, oh, it wasn't lunch. <laughs> it wasn't lunch. No, it was mixing it up a bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this house was fantastic. I mean, it was like, it was, I was like, okay. It's in a place called Leatherhead, um, just outside of London. And I was like, okay, this is incredible. So then I, 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 I sort of through the evening, um, because he was trying to set up a thing with Mike Figgis at the time, because I knew Mike quite well, because I'd been involved with Mike on and off over the years. Um, and John said, and Paul goes, oh, you got, we got to sort this thing out with Mike. And he says, but you know, he really needs to meet um, John. He goes, oh, it's my mate, Paul. And I went, Paul, okay, what does he do? Oh, Paul Allen, he, he's, um, he's really big into technology. And I went, okay. And, and so sort of left it at that, and I never really thought anything about it. And then he says, oh, Paul's coming to my flat in a couple of weeks' time. You have to come around when he's there. So I went around to his flat in a couple of weeks time and met this guy and he said oh hi i'm i'm, I'm paul allen i said i'm john, john thompson and we're talking and it turns out that paul was the co-founder with bill gates of microsoft um i'm going like this is just getting absolutely surreal um <laughs> so paul's going oh we have to talk about yeah i'm going to set up this thing called the hospital club and i want to set up all these things and i've been involved with dreamworks for some time but i want out of that and i've been trying to set up um um basically uh streaming but i mean i felt, I felt for paul because paul had tried to do streaming 10 years before everybody else so literally he was like 10 years before netflix had got to the point where um and he, he invested a hell of a lot of money into trying to get streaming working because for some reason his people had seemed to think that broadband would be deployed a lot faster than it was um but it wasn't so yeah he probably lost a few few million on that but it doesn't really matter yeah um so you know um, it sort of got, it got sort of crazy meeting all these people of various different things. And, and through this, Paul and Dave set up a thing in London called the Hospital Club, um, which was the most incredible place, which is no longer there because unfortunately after he died, his sister closed it down. Um, but it was like a private members club for people in the creative industries. And it was for people to, you know, to meet and come together and Paul used all his influence and he opened one in Los Angeles, which unfortunately, you know, didn't really work. So that, that sort of became a hub of trying to build things off. Um, yeah. So I sort of used the hospital club as my sort of base. Cause it was, I had a beautiful screening room that I was involved in designing and running. Um, they originally had 35 mil. And then obviously we had the first digital projectors in there. Um, you know, at the time it had full 7.1 sound. We never got to Atmos because unfortunately the, we, <laughs> unfortunately we couldn't get the speakers in there. Uh, yeah, I had two restaurants, uh, you know, had a nightclub, had a concert venue, had a recording studio, had a TV studio in the basement. Uh, it was incredible. Um, yeah, and in that process at the time, I was getting more and more involved with films into moving into, into digital technology. So like Harry Potter three decided to be the first film to go for a digital intermediate. So I got involved with that, uh, with the, uh, uh, cinematographer on that called, uh, Michael Saracen. Um, and literally it was, how do they do it digitally? Um, cause before it was the whole Harry Potter one and two was all done analog. Even though the effects would have been done digitally, they were all done analog, um, and pretty back to film. So Harry Potter three, um, 
was that. And they basically they found an amazing um, talk about wheels within wheels. Basically, um, the guy who was in charge of post production for Warner Brothers, who uh, I'll think of in a minute. Had basically nearly lost his job and his shirt on the Matrix because it did. The Matrix nearly failed, as in, as in, unable to unable to complete the film because there were so many technology challenges on it. And there was a guy called Peter Doyle who had helped out and sorted out all the technologies. An Australian guy had helped out all the all the technology on the Matrix. Um, so he was incredibly trusted within Warner Brothers. So he he became the sort of grader for um, the Harry Potter films there on forwards. Um, and um yeah he he graded uh, the um king kong lord of the rings for jackson um and he was involved in setting up Weta digital um so that that sort of came along and then i i think it was like i met became very good friends and met the wonderful peter mcdonald who was the second unit director on harry potter i still still know to this day um peter's lovely i mean peter peter peter's got a career that most people would you know, he was the camera operator on Superman the movie. Oh wow! You know, um, camera operator. Um, no, he was the second unit director on Batman for with Tim Burton. You know, he becomes so trusted within Warner Brothers that um, Warner's parachuted him in to um, be the executive producer on uh, Graffiti Bridge and uh, Under Cherry Moon with Prince and yep. and. Peter tells an amazing story that he had to go and meet with um, Prince himself. And Prince didn't think very much of him. And was like, really sort of like, why is this man here? Anyway, he, he meets him in his house in Minneapolis and they get to sit down to have a chat. And at the time, Prince is hanging or going out with Kim Bassinger. Well, luckily, Peter had just done Batman with Kim Bassinger. So Kim came over and gave Peter a massive hug and said, how are you, Peter? It's wonderful to see you. It's great that you said to Prince, it's great this man's involved. This guy's a genius. So from that point onwards, Prince went, okay, maybe I can trust Peter. <laughs> because at that point, it was like, who's this bloke turning up? Who's this, who's this English guy turning up with his, uh, you know, trying to tell me how to make movies? Um, you know, um, so then, and then I got involved with DCI because I, I, I remember just coming across the guys from DCI and just thinking like, well, if you're going to, if the studios are going to, if the studios are going to create an entity to create digital cinema, I want to be part of this. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a interesting, um, achievement that all six studios managed to sit down, but it was interesting watching the rivalry between the different, um, studios and the agendas, particularly Sony that, that they had and, you know, why you have to do this and that, cause Sony had got a great idea. Cause of course Sony had got a certain technology they wanted to use. Um, you know, and, and all the different studios had different ideas of what they wanted to do. Um, I always remember um, they originally wanted to use an MPEG base for a codec, and on behalf of the British contingent, because I was I was involved um, with the Department of Media, Sports and Culture, Department of Culture, Media and Sports in the United Kingdom, they had a committee from Digital Cinema Technology, and because I was involved with that, we'd done lots of discussions within that, and I um, um, said to uh, um, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the, <clears throat> um, oh God, I'm trying to think of the guy's name who used to be the head of technology at Warner at uh, Universal. He's a lovely guy. Um, very, very thing. And we, we went for an Indian meal and he said, what's your thoughts on MPEG? 
And I went, we can't have MPEG. And he said, why can't you have MPEG? I said, because MPEG is no good. It's a broadcast system and it goes blocky. We need wavelets. Yes, but there's lots of issues with wavelets. I said, what? Well, Sony have some patterns in it. Well, Sony need to start not um, enforce their patterns, do they? But wavelet is much better because it degrades degrades naturally. The image goes out of focus when it, um, when it, when it runs out of bit rate instead of going blocky. So it's a lot more like film. It just looks fuzzy and soft. And they went and did some tests and went, yeah, okay, you're right. We like wavelet. Um, and then basically they, they call Sony's bluff by saying that they were going to create a stripped down version of um, JPEG 2000. Uh, to do it, um, if Sony didn't agree, so Sony signed a deal to say that they'd never enforce their patent on it, which they'd somehow bought through some university in Japan. It was, it was, I think it was in the 60s, Wavelet was developed by a guy in a Japanese university, uh, and somehow Sony had got their little fingers all over it. Um, so that's how digital cinema ended up um, with um, using Wavelet technology, and then obviously we decided it had to be frame-based, not inter interframe. so in other words, in a digital cinema, you're watching unique frames. You're not watching anything that's compressed frame-based. All you're watching is the frame that's compressed. And, of course, it has to be at 24 frame frames. Okay. You know, we don't like yep. 2398, which will, for some reason, Blu-rays are still 2398 to maintain compatibility with the U.S. broadcast system, which doesn't really exist anymore, um, which is absolutely crazy. Um, so that went on. Um, and then I got involved with a company called uh, Larry Digital, which was which was amazing. Larry John Larry was a pioneer in digital technology. Um, he'd originally worked at NASA and in basically dealing with the moonshots, um, you know, making the images at NASA look good. And he was one of the digital pioneers. And he created this thing called Larry Digital, which were way ahead of anybody in the industry ahead as far as digital algorithms were concerned. Everything that you're probably using now is probably has some basis. From that John Larry developed. John unfortunately died a few years ago, but um, not before he was honoured with an honorary Oscar for his, his thing. But literally, Lucasfilm always used to use it for cleaning stuff up. George Lucas was committed to him. Jim Cameron thought John Larry was the greatest person on the planet. Yeah, all of Avatar went through John Larry's processes. Um, all the all the cleanup in Avatar on the original Avatar, not the re-release, but the original Avatar was done done through at Larry. Uh, all the ocular convergence was done at Larry using their technologies and the frame corrections. Uh, and then through that, the company that bought Larry uh, was an Indian company run by a guy called Lombani. Um, who decided to um, basically buy DreamWorks and set up Steven Spielberg and his new um, new entity? So suddenly, went from being a, a, a small little post production company that um, used to do clean up things to suddenly having the world's greatest film director involved with it. Um, you know, and Anna Lombardi financed a lot of like Spielberg's films, like you know, um, War Horse um, and stuff like that. They did. Um, I mean, they're now, due to other complications, DreamWorks doesn't exist anymore, and Amblin is now back, but Anil Lombani is, is now partner in Amblin with, with Stephen um, in the new version of it. Um, but that, that went along, and then um, from that, what happened from that? Uh, you came on Brightside Home Theatre? Yeah, Kevin Bradford, I'm um, I, ended, I ended up um, working on a couple of well, one a couple of the Mission Impossible films in between. I did Mission Impossible three and five, uh, working on the, the workflow and digital technology for that. I got involved with the Star Wars films when they're setting those up with the 
workflow and digital technology for JJ Abrahams because obviously he was involved with the Mission Impossible films. Um, uh, and now I'm worn out and I've had enough and the film industry I think has fallen apart and has lo lost it emotionally become bankrupt and he's not making any decent films anymore except for things like Oppenheimer. Well, funny enough, going, going back to Oppenheimer, I first met Chris Nolan um, when he really wasn't Chris Nolan. He just made this short black, well, it's not short, it's this low-budget black and white film um, called The Following which he showed at um, Edinburgh, which um, nobody yeah. went to see. He was very depressed. He and Emma, his um, wife, were very, you know, so they were showing in Edinburgh, and I think it was like three people turned up. Uh, and fortunately, there's this young woman who went to see it called Liz Rosenthal, um, who worked for a company called Next Wave, um, which was part of an American company that was run by a couple called Peter Broderick. Um, and Liz basically went and waxed lyrical to Peter about how great Chris was, and Chris is the greatest person on the planet. Um, so Peter then sees the following, meets up with Chris, and then I think within about three, four weeks, I set up a meeting with him and got him a deal at Sony to um, do in, um, uh, whatever it's called, the film that goes backwards. Um, Inception? No, not Inception. The, the, oh, Memento. Memento, Memento. So Peter helped set up that with Chris. Um, and then I sort of came across Chris again. I worked with him when he sort of first really big film, which was Batman Begins. Um, and then I did a little, some, some on Interstellar. Um, yeah, I, the whole, the whole reason we're here today talking is about Oppenheimer. And I mean, I, I've, I've been a fan of Chris's for years because he makes films that people want to watch. Yeah. Yeah, he's um, one of the few. Well, I guess they're all artists, but I don't know why. I just I just think of him as more of an artistic, you know, director, uh, influencer, whatever he for what he does. I just I feel like he he's just just out of the idea that he he likes. I mean, his simplistic home theater version of it is he doesn't want to use Atmos, right? He wants to use five one, and it's it's an artistic choice of his. And, and, and I love that stuff What you know, it just, even just his decision-making and stuff like that is technology is use of technology that he has, as opposed to, we don't need to use, you know, he's showing you how you can do stuff. You don't need all this new technology. Doesn't mean he's against it. I'm just saying you don't need it to make a quality yeah. film. Yeah. He's not, he's not, but he's, he's very similar to Stanley Kubrick in a way. Cause I work with with Kubrick on his last film, Wide Shut, and and Stanley didn't like um, Dolby Stereo. He thought it was um, distracting. He'd done a um, a test mix of uh, Clockwork Orange in um, Dolby Surround, and he thought it distracted from what he was trying to achieve. So every one of his films, even even Eyes Wide Shut, even though there's actually a five point one mix of it, is actually basically mono. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, but it's, yeah, it depends on what their intent is too. Yeah. what they're trying to get across to you. And if it, you know, I mean, try to watch transformers, you know, in mono, it doesn't work. It needs the surround sound. Cause you're not there for the story. You're there for the explosions and the tech going on around you in the room. Whereas, you know, even eyes wide shut or clockwork orange, it's like, you're there for the story. You're there for the acting. You're there for what's going on on screen. I don't need this enhanced by something going on in the back of the room. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's about trying to tell a story and not distracting from your, your vision. And I think the Chris is one of the few people who's actually still 
making a film that you know really is some is a unique vision. I mean, I mean, he's got the most craziest deal on uh, Oppenheimer. I mean, you know, he went and did a deal with Universal, and I mean, he's, he's he basically gave him everything he wanted. Um, you know, he couldn't he couldn't ask for anything else. I mean, he's even getting supposedly twenty percent of the gate. Really? So, you know, <laughs> so which is unheard, almost unheard of. Um, yeah. You know, but I mean. You know, he, he's he's one of those films. I mean, this, this is his Oscar film, though. He wants he wants an Oscar for directing. I mean, like he wants to achieve something that Kubrick never did because Kubrick never won an Oscar except for visual effects. Um, you know, Kubrick. It's interesting for some reason he he, he never fitted in with the film establishment um, in that way. Kubrick. Um, Warner's always thought he was going to be there. You know, shining knight into getting an Oscar. Things like Barry Lyndon. Um, but he never did. Um, you know, as I said, he only won an Oscar for visual effects. He shared it with the team on, uh, 2001. Um, but, uh, you know, I, Chris, Chris, I think this, this, this film will, will take him the distance. It will, it will take him, you know, I, I, ser I seriously think that, um, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is going to win an Oscar for, um, mm -hmm. actor. Cause that, if anything, I think that's the best performance in the film. I mean, supposedly, according to interviews, Danny Jr. only did it because he wanted to make a real film. And I agree with him. Yeah. You know, he, 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 he almost steals the show. Um, you I, know, think I, I think he's great. I think, I mean, uh, what, Killian Murphy, I think is incredible. Uh, well, Killian, Murphy's doing an incredible job of playing a man who basically is incredibly unlikable. I mean,. Oppenheimer supposedly, if you read like, is is a narcissistic sociopath. You know, he, he really has very poor interpersonal skills. Doesn't really respect a lot of people or a lot of things. And and you know, as, as the sequence turns out at the beginning, when he when he thinks about poisoning his um his yeah. uh, professor, um, yeah. <laughs> We'll, we'll go a little longer spoiler free and not a, yeah. it's not a big deal, but, um, but yeah, it's see, I liken that stuff to, uh, have you seen the show? Big bang theory. I love the big, I, I had a feeling That's the I, show. I, I have a feeling <laughs> that Kelly Murphy based his character of Oppenheimer on Sheldon. Cause there are so many yeah. Sheldon traits. Oh my and God. If, and if you've watched, cause like the Richard Feynman, who, if you remember fat Sheldon goes off on one playing bongos, and if yes. you remember, Simon is in the film playing bongos. John, I thought the same thing watching the movie. I want I'm I'm seeing it with my wife again, and she hasn't seen it yet. And I want when I saw it with my daughter, there's a few scenes with bongos, and I wanted to say to her, but we're both just enthralled with the movie, but it's like Sheldon plays the bongos. That's what she wanted to say. I'm like, it's there is a lot, but I don't know. I, I agree with you. Maybe he did base his you know his character or the character of of oppenheimer as much as you can call it a character on sheldon but i think a lot of research went into both of those characters oppenheimer and sheldon and those type of people that's how they act that's they don't understand they don't relate well to people and i thought i mean if you kind of compare the two characters i thought in the movie oppenheimer oppenheimer came off much more 
um, agreeable with people than Sheldon ever did. You know, Sheldon's a character of that. I mean, that show is a character of those, that those type of people. Right. And, um, it's, I just think what, what Killian Murphy did there though, I think was just, it's just incredible to play that character the way he did play it at times in the first person and to just the, the emotion that he shows as the movie goes along and how it changes, how his perspective changes all of that stuff. It's, I mean, I just thought it was incredible and it, you're right. It's like, which would you consider the leading actor here? Killian Murphy, right? So yeah. would Robert Downey Jr. get supporting, right? Probably. Yeah. I, 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 th- I think that, you know, Killy Murphy is definitely the star of this movie. But just, just a tangent to the Big Bang Theory, have you ever seen the unbroadcast pilot? I don't think so. I don't it's think worth so. It down. If I can find a link, I'll send you a link to it. Because originally Sheldon's character was the complete opposite of what he was. He was a total sleaze. It was a frat house, you know, sort of, it was like literally like an 80s uh, college comedy. Yeah. And I think the greatest thing they ever did was to basically make Sheldon completely naive and innocent, just to con- to be purely concentrating on physics, and that was it. That was his only passion and his only obsession. You know, yeah, that, that that was his derivative. But whereas, like, if you watch this this um um you know uh, on broadcast pilot, uh, it's it's almost unwatchable. And literally, I mean, the Penny character isn't in it. I'm trying to think. It's like it's like a whole. It's like it just shows how. You can go back and rewrite and go, right, this doesn't work. We've got to start again. Um, yeah. I mean, there's still some traits of it because if you've ever watched the first ever opening episode of The Big Bang Theory. Oh, yeah. Um, Leonard refers to when they try to sell sperm for money, Leonard refers to um, um, Sheldon as an Olympic champion as when it comes to uh, yeah. masturbating. Uh, and then later on, that is completely forgotten about and Sheldon has no sexuality. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, I, ne- I never picked up on that. You're a hundred percent right. That's, I know there was a, I have have watched the series. It's like literally one of my, one of my things for going to um, sleep with when I, when I first met Stacey Spears, who you were talking about with um, with me and Stacey Spears bonded because we both, we both enjoyed watching uh, the big bang theory to go to sleep to. That's what I do. That's what I'm like right now. Every night I put it on and that's what I watch to go to sleep. It's on max every night. That's what I fall asleep to. I, I have watched that series. I don't know. I mean, the day they take that off, we're going to have to spend a fortune buying it. Um, yeah. Just li- literally, it, I, I've, I've lost count how many times I've watched it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's same just some constant repeats. I mean, you know, I never get bored of it. I don't either. I, I love the show. I love, I mean, you got to come back. We'll do a whole Big Bang Theory episode. We'll talk. Yeah. Cause I mean, yeah. it's, there's so much to it. I, I it's anyways, let's get back to Oppenheimer. Yeah. The- Oppenheimer, <laughs> Oppenheimer, who is basically, basically maybe or maybe not Sheldon. Yeah, I, I know. I can't believe you said that because I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Cause I was thinking it in the theater, both I've seen it twice. You've seen it. What? Three times by now. You told me the fourth time on Friday. I'm, t- I'm going with a friend of mine on, okay. um, Friday to go see it again in 1570 because spoiler I hate to say really you have to see it in 1570 the other that's where I'm going Friday 
yeah, 70. It, just, just, it yep. just does not work 50, unless it's 1570. Even the 70 mil doesn't work as well as 1570. 1570 is basically what is what Chris has. Um, it's in, in it is intent, correct? It's intent. Whereas the rest is all, is is a, is a compromise. It's the only way I can describe it is a compromise. I mean, it's a, a very good compromise. Has to be. Compromise. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued just to see what the um, 4K Blu-ray is like because I assume the 4K Blu-ray is going to be probably close to 185, possibly. Yeah, um, that's what, and the the entire movie is shot uh, very unknown like all in one aspect ratio, but it's all in the the you know, IMAX aspect ratio, one eight five, one ninety maybe, but one eight five. Well no, well most 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 of it is two to most all the if you watch it, and when you go see it in fifteen seventeen, watch this, because literally you can't really shoot dialogue sequences with through fifteen seventy IMAX cameras, they make too much noise. So literally all the dialogue stuff is shot seventy mil five perf. So you'll have establishing shots which are fifteen seventy, and then it'll cut to two to one um seventy. Um, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, if you watch it, if you see, if you watch it in um, um, IMAX, you, you actually see how he's pieced it together. And I say that the problem they had is that you can't shoot dialogue with IMAX cameras; they're just they're just too unwieldy and too noisy. So the great establishing shots, the great you know visual effects shots, of course, the the nuclear explosion sequence is all shot true IMAX. But most of the dialogue is all shot 70 mil, five perf. Um, and, you know, it's like you, the, the first time you see the um, the Senate hearings, you'll see it'll start out um, true 1570, and then when it cuts the close-ups on the thing, it'll go to um, five perf 70. Well, um, I don't yeah. have that kind of eye. <laughs> I won't. I'd have, I'd honestly, I would love to see a movie like that like sitting or talking with somebody like yourself to be able to see the different and know what you're taught. Cause I, I, I honestly, I don't know if I would notice the difference sitting there watching, you know what I mean? I, cause I haven't been exposed to it. The whole film is constructed by a company in um, Los Angeles um, in Burbank called Photochem. And Photochem is one of the last surviving true um, film laboratories. And it's interesting because when we did star Wars, part seven which is the force awakens force awakens yeah um we tested every laboratory um and all the ones in the uk were roughly the same and then we so so we're shooting in the uk but we sent the we sent some tests over to los angeles to be processed in um photochem and the difference from photochem was astronomical it was like it was like it was like suddenly we'd gone from 16 to 35 um, I mean, everybody was convinced as soon as the first test came back from Photochem, it's like, yeah, okay, that's the way he's going to be done. Um, cause the, the, you know, um, the, this, cause literally all the Star all the Star Wars films, um, all the, the existing Star Wars films, uh, seven, eight, and nine are all shot on film. Uh, all the other films like Rogue One, Solo, um, are all shot digitally. Um, right. So. Um, I mean, Gareth Edwards, I think, did an incredible job on um, um, Rogue One. I think Rogue, out of all the films that, I think Rogue One, because that was probably the closest to anarchy I've ever been involved on a film, and it, it turned out really well. <laughs> anarchy? 
<laughs> what happened? It, it was literally almost up until the day it was supposedly finished. We were still shooting stuff. I mean, we were shooting in a school in North London with some stormtroopers. Um, literally the day before it was um, supposed to be delivered. Um, but I mean, the, the film did really well, and it made it made a hell of a lot of money. And it was, you know, yeah. it's funny if you ever watch, if you ever watch, have you ever seen the film Oblivion? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Tom Cruise. Yeah, Oblivion, where he where he where he supposedly lives, and is 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 basically shot in exactly the same place in Iceland. So literally, he's flying from. Um, front to back over the landscape in Iceland and, and in Rogue One they go left to right over exactly the same location. Oh, that's nice. The, that's funny. Um, that's it's beautiful black sort of um, sand on the beach, um, volcanic uh, sand. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing the sort of, you know, it, it, it's, like, it's like Jordan. It's like, you know, it's like you watch so many, so many films and you suddenly realise it's like, yeah, they're all shot in the same place. Yeah, if you look at the valley in Rogue One, it's the same valley that the other way that's in Lawrence of Arabia. Well, yeah, there's only so many places on Earth, John. The guy, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it's, funny, it's funny. I saw a, what was a film. I saw a um, film with Bruce Dern, and it was directed by. I'm trying to think what, it, but it was interesting. The woman who produced it, and it was directed by well, the woman who produced it, said, "You like this film because we've shot in places that nobody's ever shot before in Texas." <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. It was a black and white film with Bruce Dern. Um, oh, um, and it was interesting because because they, they, they went out of their way to find places that you'd never seen before. Yeah, on film, anyways. Yeah, I'm sorry, on film. Yeah, on film. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, is, it is. I mean, literally, because most films use the same location managers, the same same production managers. That's why they end up shooting on the same place because it's like. Everybody who you know, everybody knows everybody, and oh, they've always got a deal there. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the it's, permits it's, are already in place. It's easier to get to. You know, everything's all set. It's it's smoother. Well, it's like the first Star Wars film they shot in Tunisia, and the because I, I worked with the guy who later on is he's now one of the most influential movie executives in the industry. But he was the location manager on the original Star Wars in um, in Tunisia. A guy called Tarek Ben Omar. Well, he's he's the king's cousin or whatever it is so basically where luke skywalker lives is a hotel his uncle owns jeez <laughs> so yeah um body yeah uh, it's, uh, um yeah it's like it's like literally um it almost becomes slightly repetitive if you think about it it's, uh, luckily you know you just move the camera slightly and you don't realize it's exactly the same place well, yeah, exactly. It, I mean, it's all a matter of perspective, literally and figuratively, right? And like you said, it's like, oh, we shot this one coming in this way, left to right. We're going to shoot it going right to left, and nobody's going to know the difference. So, or one's in black and white, one's in color. It's, or, you know, I mean, we're well, so, not so, super well, attuned to this stuff. Steve George yeah. is. <laughs> well, I think it's like I said the other week, it's like when, when we were doing Dial of Destiny on the North Yorkshire Railway, just down the track, Tom Cruise was shooting his. A uh, bit of uh, Mission yeah. Impossible. Woman. So technically, if the trains had run into each other, it would have been a fascinating movie. <laughs> I think. Didn't you say? Did you say that in the chat, or did you say that to Steve or something? Like, yeah, talk, yeah. we talked about that. Yeah, that's what's um, funny. I just, I just think that's this. You know, literally, you know, um, the alternate. Um, there's a there's a Italian film. Have you? I don't know if you've ever seen it called The Bicycle Thieves. No. 
which is basically, it's, I can't remember the, the, the well-known Italian director, but it's about the annoyances, the, the director's annoyance of TV commercials. And what happens in, in, throughout the film is it's, it's a parody of the original, the classic, the, bicy- the, uh, the, the Bicycle Thieves. It's called The Icicle Thieves. And literally what happens is the adverts start intermingling with the, uh, the, the actual story of the film. So characters from the adverts start appearing in the film. Oh, that's funny. That's wicked funny. Speaking of that, before we get to Oppenheimer, did, have you seen Ast- uh, Asteroid City? Yes, I have, unfortunately. You didn't like it? I, I, I hated it. I thought, to put it in my mind, I thought it was potentially total. Not only did you not like it, John, you hated it. Okay. <laughs> where, where, is, where is like Grand Budapest Hotel, though, I thought it was incredible. I love that film. I can watch that over and over again. Okay. I Asteroid City, I thought, was hysterical. I thought it was amazing. I loved everything they did with it. I love what how they manipulated the sound. I loved how the the picture. They, I mean, it was an artistic choice, like a one hundred percent all the way through. And then yeah. I love like Brian Cranston that that one scene when he comes in. Is, oh, I'm not in this scene. I just loved that stuff. I just thought like there is so much in that movie, and I don't want to give anything away to anybody because I don't even know if I could because I still don't understand it, <laughs> but. There's stuff going on that you're paying attention to that like never pays off. That you're like, why was that there? But it's. It, I just thought it was a fascinating movie. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I need to to revisit it again. I mean, the last couple of months I've been in a rather bad headspace from being involved with too many bad films. Um, <laughs> you sound like Steve George. <laughs> He's like, he'll see a movie I'm like I didn't like it. Then he goes watches it in the. Cinema George, apparently there's a lot going on in that room because it makes him a lot happier. He he'll say well, like, well, hey, it's well, fantastic. He's, well, I mean, technically he is he is working with the wretched scum of hive and villainy of this world, so he defends them all. So I imagine he needs there to you go. Exactly. He needs to escape from them all to get his sanity back. Because of course, you know, his 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 client didn't do it, honest guff. Um yeah. But I mean, I mean, I I, I love Steve because he defends people. Yeah, he's like my favorite yeah. hero, Ron Paul of the Bailey. Because I don't know if you ever saw, there's a classic British series called no. Ron Paul of the Bailey about a lawyer, and he always defended people because being prosecution, you're just taking money. He's not he's yeah. not prosecuting. Um, yeah. I think Steve. That's what I like about Steve is he defends people. Anybody who defends people is a you know a good well, that man. Was, yeah, that was my purpose of this podcast to defend the movies that people. Are, are crapping all over and they're like, ah, this isn't very good. I'm like, well, let's have some fun with it. And it's like, I'm, you know, it's very hard for me to say I hate something, but, um, let's get to something that I, let's, let's do the spoilers. Let's get to the spoilers for Oppenheimer. We're going to discuss the bejesus. Of well, this. I, think, I think everybody realizes he makes a bomb and it goes bang. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's what's surprising here. Let me play my little sounder. After this, it's all spoilers. So if you're if you hear this sounder and you still are listening, hey, you can't tell me it's my fault that you listen. You heard spoilers. So let's play the sounder. The data tells me there is potential danger of plot and or character dynamics that could go rotten. And there it is. All right. So spoilers bomb goes boom but that's not what the movie's about i actually had a friend of mine come up to me i said did you like the movie and he's like it's a little disappointed i was expecting it was going to be more about the explosion but it was all about that other stuff and it's all of that other stuff that i found fascinating yeah well, i mean it's almost it's almost like that yeah you know, the, the story is the rise and fall of oppenheimer yeah yeah 
um, the, the actual, the actual um, you know, I suppose, I suppose you could say the bomb is the MacGuffin. Um, yeah, it really is. Yeah, you're right. That's in it. It's and actually, if you look at his life, it, it Oppenheimer's life, it's like he's he did it because, it, like, it was an ex. According to the movie, it, it was like it was just a scientific endeavor. Can we do this right? And it was. All right, let me see if we can do this. And I, th- another thing I thought of the first time I saw it, it was a line from Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum's line. You were so concerned on whether you could do this, you never stopped to think if you should. And I, yeah. th- I think that's where Oppenheimer, he got that, and they talk about it in the movie. Like, when did you, at his quote, hearing that, like, when did you get this? you know, bout of morality. And he's like, when I realized, and this is where I think we get into the Sheldon part. Everybody knew. I, I, I would expect that you're develop. He knew right away when he saw the technology that we're, we're, it's a bomb at the very beginning of the movie. And he sees the tech and he goes, we split the atom. And he goes, we're going to make a bomb out of this. The whole world's all the, you know, everybody's thinking, how do we make a bomb out of this? And it was, probably his ego and in real you know can i be the one to make this first but he never really was thinking of the after part and that you know hey they went on and made it and you made it and now the world is going to use it and i i just i am a little bit more sympathetic to oppenheimer than a lot of people i mean he's in a quandary because like literally yeah, it's it's one of those things. If they didn't do it, the Nazis would have done it anyway, right? Yeah, even though the Nazis were going, yeah. You know, I mean, the thing, the best thing in the film is he said, you know, um, you know, I, th- I think Hitler has got a major handicap. What's that? Oh, he's anti-Semitism. Yeah, the fact that the fact that all his lead scientists were Jewish and he wasn't going to prepare to give his lead scientists any resources because he hated them because they were Jewish, so they really handicapped himself. Yeah. So I mean that 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 was an interesting interesting thing. Um, the you know the Nazis could have actually, if it wasn't for their own arrogance uh, and and hatred, could have actually been miles ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the movie itself. Let's like, I mean, I can go off on Oppenheimer, the the person, according to the movie and stuff, all day, um, but the movie itself the the tech that you know that nolan is using here the explosions no cgi all of that the sound how was the sound for you when did you notice the pacing of the different explosions and how they got further away and it's like that first that first small one they did out in the desert and you see it go boom and the, or but then you hear it you know what I mean? Like you'll see the flash of the explosion, but then let what, like a second and a half later, we hear it in the theater and every explosion after that is a little further away. And it's a, they keep the delay was longer and of course, bigger. I can't wait for that in the home theater. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it, it, it's an expert. The whole film is an experiment in sound. I think this is probably more of an experiment in sound than any of his other films. I mean, what is interesting, though, just just to just to 
I have never had a problem with any of Chrissy's films hearing the dialogue. Maybe it's because I see them in cinemas that are perfectly set up in rooms that are capable of it, but Oppenheimer in all three times I've seen it, I had no problem hearing the dialogue. I've spoken, I've heard lots of other people who said they've had real problems in understanding what's going on. And they want yeah. to see it again in the home because they can't actually understand the dialogue. Um, yeah. I, 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 had, I agree I had, with you. I hadn't, didn't have a single issue. I mean, actually, I mean, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, this comes back to sort of what, what, what you were discussing the other way. I mean, like the, the digital IMAX cinemas, for some reason, seem to have their own special source and crank everything up and make it unlistenable. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot. I, I, it doesn't feel like those rooms are balanced correctly or calibrated correctly. So maybe and I haven't I'll be seeing it in IMAX on Friday. I'd be interested to see how the dialogue plays to me there. Um, I, I, I feel like yeah i agree with you i i'm so tired of the people talking about like i i hate his films because i don't understand the dialogue i don't have a problem with it i i've always understood it there are times when you have to listen a little more intently to hear stuff but that's because there's other stuff going on yeah. and it's like just like when you're in a crowded room talking with your your friend if you're not paying attention to your friend, it's going to get drowned out by the room around you. But if you're if you're intently paying attention to your friend across from you, you'll understand him fine. And it's and I think to me, I think that's what Nolan's doing. It's like if you want to understand the dialogue, you need to be paying attention. Yeah. And that's it. And I feel like I am. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because like um one screening I went to the opening night because I wanted to go sit at the opening night at the Odeon Leicester Square, which they were showing in 70 mil. And the guy next to me, I mean, he paid, I don't know, £27 for the seat or whatever it was. And I mean, he was playing with his mobile phone. I had to tell him to stop playing. He's like, why have you come to the cinema and playing with your mobile phone? Yeah. It's like, what is the point? Why have you paid £27.50 to look at your phone? Yeah. You know, turn it off. It's like, well, you just, you, just give me the £27.50. You can go sit in the bar. <laughs> yeah yeah and, and, and that's the thing it's i i just i i don't listen well you can't help it but especially if you're following oppenheimer on social media it's like you're gonna you can't filter out people talking about it but that it, it's that doesn't bother me it's like the the audio and his his movies to me in pretty much every movie is you know, it's something to it's a reference film because of what he did in those movies. Going back to Interstellar, uh, Dark Knight series, uh, the sounds that he utilizes, the way he utilizes the score. I mean, in this movie, when this movie ended, when Oppenheimer ended, my son, we stand up. My son looks at me and he goes, how did he do that? And I'm like, what? who what right like are we talking oppenheimer here what are we talking and he goes nolan he goes that was three hours and it felt like it was under two hours yeah I mean, that's the thing it's like the, the film does not feel not it feels like a 90 minute movie it feels like a 90 minute movie it, it is a pleasure to watch it it's like literally the time oh my it's like, it's like oh, three hours have gone it's like how did that yeah. happen um I mean, said before before the movie that I was like, I, I couldn't wait to see it, but I was probably only going to see it once because it's a three hour movie. 
I'm now going to see it my third time. I can't wait to see it again after that. It's like it cooks, it flies by and it's, it's that score. It's the, it's the editing too, but the score, the way that like, you're just like, it, it feels like it speeds up time. Yeah. I, I mean, but that's the thing. It's like, you're so engaged in what's happening. I mean, you know, so like, but why I like to go to academy screenings because academy screenings you're not allowed to touch your phone. If you get your phone out during an academy screening, you'll get a black mark, three black marks, and you go get don't get invited to any more screens. Um, because yeah, yeah, it's like literally, you know, no distraction, no anything. You are like, and that 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 three hours is like literally, it's a pleasure. It's like just go goes. It's like a yeah, it's like spending time with a very good old friend. Yeah. Yeah, actually. And, and I know on my second time, you're paying attention to, like, you already know the pacing of the movie. So now you're paying attention to other things that are at the beginning of the movie that you're going to see that is a highlighting stuff. You're already, you are going to see at the end of the movie. Um, I, I'm just amazed at how good this is and how just, I can't wait for the home theater version. It's just yeah, it's, it's um, November, isn't it? They just they just announced today the release date of it. Oh, did they really? I haven't yeah. seen that. Yeah, as um, one of our friends was it Disc Father who um, did he announce he saw- it or guess it? I saw it. Yeah, he, he, saw- he, announced, he announced it and said confirmed. I think he sent another one saying confirmed, and then somebody else sent another one saying confirmed. Let's have a look. Oh, you know, nice. Um, yeah, it's quite a long wait. I mean, all the good, all the good films, it looks like we're going to have to wait some time before they get, uh, released on, um, yeah. on, uh, on home media. Let's have a look at the, see if so says what it is. Is that November for the disc or for digital? Yeah, November for the disc, it'll obviously be out digitally before then. Um, let me see. Says here. Uh, uh, okay. Blu-ray hat. Blu-ray.com has no release date yet, but they just probably haven't updated. I have twenty-first of twenty-first um, no. of uh, November. He's saying. Nice. All right. I'll. Uh, I mean, that's that's a bit, that's a bit of a wait, but um, you know. Yeah, that is 21st of November. So that's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving over here. That would make um, sense. then. that would make sense if it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, because that, that, yes, that, that, that's people are going to, they're trying to cash in on people buying it for, um, you know, holiday period, the holiday period. Yeah. Thanksgiving weekend coming up. I saw, I saw some people speculating that before Jeff put that out. Um, Cause like I said, I hadn't seen that yet, but people were like, oh, people are going to want it for Thanksgiving weekend and like for the family coming over. And I'm like, all right, I love the movie. It's my movie of the year. I've already said it. I don't think anything's going to beat it, but I don't see people having a big Thanksgiving dinner and sitting down with the family to watch this afterwards. It's a three hour movie. It's not very uplifting. <laughs> it's like, you're like, I, I just don't see the correlation there. <laughs> yeah. I- yeah, I, 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 I did. I mean, you know, uh, well, maybe you could watch the Barbie movie as well. Yeah. Have you seen the Barbie movie? I've seen the Barbie. I've seen the Barbie movie twice. I suggest if you see it, you see it in Dolby Cinema because the colors are absolutely stupendous in Dolby Cinema. Really? Um, it's interesting because both Barbie, the both Barbie movie and Oppenheimer are both about death. 
Oh, don't spoil it for me. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're both about death. I mean, the both. I, I'm. It's interesting. I mean, I'm annoyed by a lot of the people who say, "Oh, it's um, uh, yeah, it's a true misandric um, uh, attack on men." It's like, well, it's not. It's a woman. It's a film from a truly female perspective. How many films throughout the history of cinema have been right. in a male perspective? This is a film that's in a totally female perspective, right? And it it, it works, yeah. And also, most people, everybody seems to have missed. There's a subtle bit at the end where. Basically, Barbie suddenly realizes that basically, yeah, we have to be equal. And there's a look that Margot Robbie gives the camera that realizes that she realizes that, you know, all men is wrong, all women is wrong. There has to be a balance between the both. I mean, you know. Well, it's funny because I I used to say growing up, I'm very much the same way. And I like growing up, I used to say to people, they'd be like, it's a lot harder for girls, you know, growing up as teenagers. It's just so much more difficult for them. And I'm like, do you, you know, really? Because I had a pretty hard time going through puberty too as a guy. Yeah, it's harder for girls. I I didn't say it wasn't, but couldn't it be equally as hard? Because everything is, you know what I mean? It's a balance. It's like, it's all from your perspective. It's like no girl has ever gone, didn't know what it was like being a guy (laughs) and vice versa. So how do you know? So I always was like, I don't think it's harder. I think it's equal. I'm like, everybody, it's hard for everybody growing up. It's hard for all of this. So I, I agree with that. And it's like, I, you know, but I, the other thing I was going to say is the people that think it's, you know, um, you know, whatever art to me, I was always, is a reflection of yourself. What you yeah. see in art is you're taking it from your own perspective. So if you look at something and you think a certain thing, it's like you look in yourself first, because maybe that's not what the artist intended, but that's what you're interpreting. And your interpretation is going to be based off of you. And it's, and I, I've said that to a lot of people and it kind of makes them angry. <laughs> well, it makes them angry because it's true. That's why. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And, th- and then they realize, like, but I think everything's crappy. Well, then look into that yourself. Maybe you're crappy. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's the first time I've ever agreed with the film critic Grace Randolph. I mean, everything she normally puts out, I usually hate with a passion. But her review of Barbie, I think, is completely spot on. So, I, you know, she, she, she's actually got it um, got it right. Um, it's, it's interesting looking at. The trouble is with YouTube, there are so many channels devoted to hatred of film. It's unbelievable. Well, that's it's what like, sells. Come on, John. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, yeah, negativity is, 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 is the new, the new um, positive. But, I know. That's why I came up with Brightside. It's different. And it's, you know, and you see the numbers. It's a lot harder. It's like yeah. people are like, this guy's happy. Let's get out of here. <laughs> and it's got, bright in the, it's got bright in the title. It's right there. It's like. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's like literally, it's like being involved in the film industry, and it's really funny because, like, a lot of the time, some things I know exactly what's going on, and you watch these channels and they're speculating, and it's so funny. And they just they've had, they've had one bit of gospel rumor from somewhere, and literally they, they they've spun a whole ten YouTube um, chats on the whole thing, and it's like, how how are you doing this? You know. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's it really is. I don't know why it's it's just to me it's just easier to be negative because usually and here's why it's like 
in my from my perspective. It's easier to be negative because negativity is usually founded in ignorance. And I don't mean that in a yeah. bad way, but you'll say like, I don't like something. I know for my for myself, it's like, if I don't like something, I haven't really understood it yet. And then when I understand what, and if we're talking about art or something, I'll be like, I understand what the artist intent was. I might not still might not be my favorite, but man, he nailed that or she nailed that. That's perfect. It's just, I don't, it's not my favorite, but I get what they're going for there. Um, that's so negativity. A lot of times is based in ignorance. Most of the time is based in ignorance. You're like, ah, I don't like that. It's dumb. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Everybody loves movies. Everybody loves being entertained and having a good time. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I love the reaction. I mean, it's like, you know, Touchwood, everyone tells horror stories about going into the United States of America. Touchwood, that next time I go in, I don't get um, second, the secondary interview and a cavity search. But every time I've gone in, the, the, guy, the guy at um, immigration goes, so what do you do? And you go, oh, uh, I'm, in, I'm in the film business. He goes, what films you worked on? Star Wars. It's like, bish, bash, bash, straight in the country, sir. He's like, go on. Working on your own. how's that going? It's like, it's like, it's like you know, I've, you know, never, never had a problem getting into the United States of America telling anybody that I, you know, I, I work on movies and make movies. I remember going to Canada once. I went from um, Canada to, sorry, North America to Canada. And all my American colleagues were with me because obviously if you're an American, you have no problem getting into Canada. You just walk through the little door. I had to go through a special door because I had a British passport. Um, <laughs> you know, a Canadian guy's glaring at me. So why are you here? And I said, well, we're here to make a movie. And they always carried me into the country. Come on in, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah I, 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 i'm gonna try that what do you do i make movies i don't know do they ask for credentials and a resume i don't know i, don't know. Yeah, I think you have to know what you're talking about i, I know, know. <laughs> um yeah oh. <laughs> but uh yeah as long as you don't tell yeah as long as you're not trying to work in the united states without a visa or unauthorized that you're, you're fine yeah. yeah um yeah i mean yeah um, I always love it coming back into into Great Britain. It's so funny because like I've given up going to the passport control in Great Britain because you hand them over your passport and they sort of scan it, and then something must come up on the screen, and then they seem to be reading it, and then they're sort of glaring at you. And it's like, what are you reading about me? What have I done? And then they just hand your passport back and wave you through. And it's like, so what did that say? Why are you glaring at me? What have I done? That's why I use the automatic. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't like to feel judged by this. Yeah. It's, so, like, it's like, oh, he's been in and out of the country several times in the last couple of weeks. Why is that then? Um, but yeah, I, films are about enjoyment. They're about entertainment. They're about making people happy. And it's like, it really does get me down, all these haters about, oh, yeah, film yeah. is dead, movies is dead. It's like, well, no, it's, it's yeah, every, every, every time, yeah, in the 70s, when supposedly there's some of the greatest films ever made, everybody said cinema was dead. In the eighties, when all those great Arnold Schwarzenegger and other um, action movies and action the, movies yeah. is dead, but no, yeah, in the nineties, you know, oh, I've said in the you know every every decade they keep saying cinema is dead, and for some reason it still keeps going on. It's because we still we want to be entertained, and I mean, you know, Oppenheimer, is, you know, is a very interesting story. I mean, it's a fascinating, it yeah, it, it's a piece of history. Um, yeah, it, it's. It's interesting, you know, it, it, it could have gone a lot harder on the sort of like, yeah, how America tried to destroy its own people. 
you know, the, the sort of, you know, how many people in the 20s and 30s, particularly um, in the entertainment and scientific industry, were both, you know, intellectuals were all drawn towards communism and a lot of people were card-carrying communists. Um, you know, because, of course, you know, what's, what, <laughs> I mean, as Oppenheimer points out, I mean, Oppenheimer makes a good point, is I'm interested. You can join, I'm interested. Yeah. yeah. You know? And that's the thing, it's like anybody, anybody who rejects something who's never actually given it the courtesy to look at it, I think is right. a very strange person who really hasn't got a point of view. Oh, I don't like it because I, I just don't like that person. Whereas if I've actually spent time reading, looking at it and understanding what the ideology is, you know, then, then, then you can criticize it. And I mean, Oppenheimer, you know, he, he obviously was a, a phenomenally intelligent man. Um, he's yeah. too intelligent. I mean, yeah, too intelligent, intelligent to deal with people. Yeah. But yeah. he has, and, and, and just like I said earlier, a lot of negativity is based in ignorance. He preferred to learn about it and then made his opinions on it. Like, okay, it's not just like I said earlier. It's like he learned about communism and was like, all right, I, I, I was interested in it because I wanted to see what it was all about. And then he didn't follow through. He was, that's not what he was interested in, but he learned about it before making a negative uh, assumption. I mean, he, he learned first. But I, I think like my getting to the story and what Nolan did here, I I've said this to a few people. It's like, I love how the movie's book ended with the Albert Einstein conversation. And what ends up happening is Strauss does to Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer does it, it, it comes back on Strauss. Yeah. Right. But then at the very, that, that entire Albert Einstein Oppenheimer conversation at the beginning and the end, I'm Oppenheimer. What he did to Einstein comes back on him. And yeah. that's what that, which I thought was amazing. You had, which is cyclical, which, and, but the entire, it's, it's cyclical. It's chain reaction. It's all of this stuff that happens. And it's like, just like when they were like, you know, coming up with like, if we do this, we could set off a chain reaction that would make everything explode. Well, it's kind of like what each person did to each person. And it, it's like the intertwinement of this story, if that's even a word, um, yeah. is I thought was amazing. And that's why I can't wait to see it again. You know, yeah, it, it, it's li lit literally it's like, you know, every generation is trying to prove themselves and that, oh, yeah, we, we are better than the last generation. But they're not. They're actually, as, as Einstein no. points out, exactly what happened to you is going to happen to me. Smiles getting the medal. John, you, uh, you tweeted after before I saw the movie, I saw your you saw it before I saw the movie. You saw it at the premiere and I saw your tweet saying it's and a lot of people have said this. It is a tough watch. Uh, you said it's a, I think you might've said uh, like, it's a depressing ending or something. And I came out of there and I would, I had a big smile on my face and I, I tweeted it. I said, there is a silver lining to this. And I've had listeners email me and, and DM me like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and that's exactly what you just said is the silver lining. Yeah. We're, we're idiots. We've done this before. We'll do it again. And it's, this is what happens. Don't get so caught up in the negative because, and again, and I, I had this conversation with quite a few people, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. 
right? Yeah. You do a negative, you get a positive. You do a positive, you get a negative. That's what this movie is about. And it's like, it, it, it to me, that's the silver lining in this. Well, it's like everybody, it's like literally Chris is very clever because it sets it up at the beginning and you just basically want to know what he said to Oppenheimer. That's what he said to Einstein because he looks like Einstein's really pissed off. Exactly. Yeah. And he kind of uh, is, but he's mad at Oppenheimer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, it's like, and you, you know, you have to literally wait that almost that whole three hours to, 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 to see the inside. Cause literally our, our, our friend, um, Robert Downey Jr. doesn't know what they're saying. And he, he's, it almost burns him up inside that he doesn't know what has been said. Yeah. And, and, and it's almost to him that he thinks that Oppenheimer is not a very nice person that he and Einstein didn't go on, but he doesn't know what was said. So therefore, if you didn't know what I said, it would have actually probably even killed him even more. Yeah. Cause it had nothing to do with him. No. And, and here's the other thing. Okay, what did you, what did you know? He goes, he goes, he goes, Oh, do you want me to introduce you to him? He says, no, it's all right. I know him. He's like, I know, him. but not only that, he knows them. And I had this conversation with my daughter because as the movie plays out, you see when he takes that, the piece of paper to Einstein and says, you know, talking about the chain reaction, take a look at this. That's where it happens long before that conversation with Robert yeah. Downey Jr. there. Right. So it's like, and one of the one of the takeaway lines, like throwaway lines, it seems like you go, uh, Robert Down Strauss says, I don't know what he's doing out there every day, but he's out there. And now as you watch the movie, you come to find out Oppenheimer knows why he's out there. Yeah. Because you know, he said the trees, they're most they're amazing. He goes for a walk out there. He yeah. knows everything about Einstein. You know, yeah. and 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 even that stuff like talking about like why didn't you bring einstein in on the manhattan project uh because he, it, he it's past his time and yeah. that's and that's what i that at that lakeside conversation was about you know it's going to be your time someday and that, that's what's going to happen to, and that's exactly what happened to him and that's I, again i i don't know how many times you can see this movie before you get bored no i, I think i think it's a it's one of these films that you can probably easily watch once or twice a year in the future. You know, it's one of those films that you can annually go, okay, I'll watch that. And you look forward to enjoying watching it. You know, it's yeah. like, like watching Jaws or Lawrence of Arabia or you know any of those, those great movies that you can just watch over and over again. This is one of those movies too, that I don't foresee. I don't foresee myself sitting down to watch, like, you know, watch an hour of it pick up i i saw somebody wonder if you could make this into a like a three-part series and i don't think so i think the movie is just like the subject it's a chain reaction you have to watch the entire thing in in like just go because yeah. it the pacing pushes you on every scene every edit is a what's going to happen next? What's going what's going to be said next? What's coming next? You know, it's like it, it, there's a cliffhanger with every edit practically, and that sets you up for the next scene. Mean to the point that, like, by the end of the movie, when they bring you back to the conversation with Oppenheimer and Einstein, you've almost forgotten about that. So much has taken place that when the first time you see it, when that comes up, you're like, oh yeah, what was said there? You're like, all right, here we go, and. That's why on the second and I can't wait for the third viewing when you see them walking in the wood where he hands them the, the, the notes on, on the chain reaction, you're like, that's the lakeside. I get it. I understand. There's, 
there's it, it, there's so much. Yeah, I, it, it there is so much detail there. It's like, you, you, it's like a lot of these films. It's like literally, you know, you, you need to see it so many times to understand all the little subtle details, all the things that have been put in there. You know the the you know the bongos. It, the bongos, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, only fans of the of the Big Bang Theory, I think, would really get that. They go, "That's Richard Feynman." Of course, he's playing the bongos. Yes, yes. It's, 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 it's the classic episode where Sheldon goes completely nuts and goes, "Yeah, Sheldon Bongo Solo." Yeah, exactly. It, it was funny when they first meet. Um, I forget who the uh, experimental physicist was. Throughout the movie, what I, I forget his name is Lawrence Fermi. Uh, Fermi. Well, if you watch uh, the Big Bang Theory, it's the guy who created Fermi Labs, right? So, um, what's his in name? Chicago. Fermi. Yeah, exactly. Chicago, yeah. yeah, and I saw that. But when they first met him, and Oppenheimer comes in, it's like you have Erp, Oppenheimer and him. And I said to my son and my son-in-law, I'm like, "That's Leonard and Sheldon right there." <laughs> and I'm like, "Because it's the experimental and the and the um." Theorist. Theoretical. Yeah. Theoretical physicist. And that's that's the two of them working together. That's Leonard and Sheldon right there. But then I also picked up well, on is, that. Is, is, is that such, such a Sheldon line where he says, Do you want to help us build it? I don't want to help you build it. Yeah, I'm exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was so Sheldon that was. It's like, no, no, no don't do building. <laughs> yeah. But the, the one difference between him and Sheldon, Sheldon loved he was a math. He loved his math. Yes. And Oppenheimer wasn't good at math. And no. that and neither, that's was, neither was Einstein according to that film either. Okay, exactly. Exactly. And, and I've heard that. Where did I, I heard it somewhere else too, that he was horrible with math. Somebody said well, that like he might have failed math or something like that. Well, I, th I think what it is, is, is that actually, if you're the level of genius they are, maths is actually quite crude to be able to try and describe what you're trying to understand. Right. It, it's a fundamentally a human, um, you know, uh, construction maths. You know, yeah. Even though it has lots of similarities and parallels and, you know, to, to how things are in the real world, it's actually it's still a human construction. It's still very constraining. And I think those who are true genius like Einstein and Oppenheimer, maths is fundamentally quite crude and actually is, is you know, can't quite, it's very difficult to get something to, you know, what's it the guy says at the beginning? He says, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not whether you can play the music, it's whether you can hear the music. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was going to go to next. It's like, can you hear the music? Do you understand? Like, you don't have to know how to read the music. You don't have to know how to, you know, just know, can you hear it? Um, yeah. But what, what I, the other thing that I liked about Oppenheimer and Einstein is that to me, they're artists, but yeah. their canvas is physics instead of, you know, they, so they're thinking creatively. And I think math is a, is a construct that actually gets in the way of their creativity. Yeah. Right. And it's like, because they're like, somebody will tell them and, and they say it early on in the movie, like you'll, they'll come up with something and be like, that's physically impossible. That that's against the laws of physics. We can't do that. Yeah. But what, but look at that. We have a helicopter. <laughs> it's like, right. Yeah. Or then when they split the atom, they're like, that's impossible. The math says it can't be done. They did it. Oh, so it's like, right. it's that creativity that thinks outside the box and that the box being math. Yeah. 
Well, basically, that was the construction of quantum physics. Quantum physics was created because literally in traditional physics, you couldn't make things work. You had to go to that next realm. You know, um, create, as, 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 as was it, Leonard says to Sheldon many times, yeah, of course, if you, if you create 144 dimensions, you make it work. Right. But, th but that's, that's what, but that's the creativity. It's like, just because, and my son's an engineer, went to school for engineering, went, loves thinking like my, my best friend in high school and an engineer, you know, I have that, I have a little bit of that mindset so I can, we can have conversations but I'll say stuff to my son and he'll be like, dad, that's not possible. And we'll, and the two of us get frustrated because I'm like, just because it's not possible doesn't mean we can't try. And, and that's and him and I have had this conversation since he and Oppenheimer together. You're like, see, that's what happens. It's like, just because it can't be done or you think it can't be done doesn't mean you can't try. And I just, again, well, it's another depth of this movie. <laughs> That's the thing I learned very quickly in this business. All, all the top directors, there's one thing that they don't understand, and that is the word no. Exactly. Yep. It's like, it's literally, Steven Spielberg does not understand the word no. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, like George Gibbs, who I worked with, who's a brilliant visual effects, uh, practical visual effects guy. He said to them, that to me in the early years, he said, basically, he said, basically, you know, never say no to anybody. He says, if somebody says, can you do that? You go, I'll think about it. You never say no. Or you say we could try. It's like, yeah, I'll think about it. I'll come back tomorrow with an answer for you. Yeah. In, in, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I mean, without even thinking, Spielberg said, right, we're going to blow the top of that mountain off. Right, how the hell do you blow the top of a mountain off? I mean, this is before CG. So right. George Gibbs, go and buy a load of dynamite out of the back of a, from a, dodgy Moroccan bloke out of a, back out of a, a transit van, white transit van that I'm surprised actually got to the set without blowing up. That was just full of explosives. Yeah. Um, you can't say when somebody, it, that's been a thing for me. Somebody tells me I can't do something. It just makes me want to do it even more. Right. And you're like, you, you try to do something you try, you know, creativity is that's where things are, are invented. If, so, if it can't be done, somebody's trying to find a way to get it done. And it, go ahead. Did you see that interview with Matt Damon when he had lunch with Tom Cruise? And Tom no. Cruise says, oh, when, when, he, when he hires a stunt guy and the stunt guy, he, he says, oh, I want to do this, this, and the stunt guy says, no, it's too dangerous. Tom goes, okay, and then gets a new stunt guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where's, where's Matt Damon going? Normally I'd be going, like, if somebody said that, I'd be thinking, like, hang on, my life. Is in danger here. I could die. Maybe this guy's got a point, but Tom could be like, no, I'll just, I'll just find another stunt guy until somebody says, yes, I need a second opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but that, that's what they want to do, you know? And that's, you can't, that's where I can't remember the movie. Uh, I know the movie. I can't remember the director. Maybe you know who it was. Cone. He did, um, uh, hurricane heist, but he also did some fast and furious movies. Yes. Is it Robert um, Robert Cohn? Is that it? Yeah, yeah, Cohen. Yeah, um, um, Cohen. Rob Cohen. Rob, Rob, Rob Cohen. Yeah. So in in his um, I, I was listening to his uh, audio commentary, and on Hurricane Iced, they they had like zero budget, and in he's like, when I did, I think, like I said, I think it was like Fast and Furious movies, they had sky's the limit for the budget, and he's like, I I needed another crane. 
He goes, we had two cranes on Fast and the Furious. I needed a third crane. They're like, here you go. Here's the third crane so we can get this shot. He wanted a crane for Hurricane Heist. And they're like, no, <laughs> you're not getting a crane. We don't have the budget for it. So they had to rethink of how we're going to shoot the scene. And he's like, we actually invented something that is, I can't remember what it was, but they actually invented something that's used now. It's still well, used. That's what, well, that's what I love about Grand Budapest Hotel. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Every now and again, I, I retweet it when I see it being posted, is the, the train carriage sequence in Grand Budapest Hotel, which is basically a window frame and a set of curtains and a black cloth over the camera and a load of people rocking it. Yeah. Oh, Train carriage is just literally just a, you know, a, a yeah. frame of, of a window with with um, our man sitting in front of it and just them rocking it. Yeah, um, that's yeah, yeah. That's how uh, great yeah. things are invented, though. You know, you got. Yeah. It, it, I think Cohen says that. Robert Cohen says that he's like, it's you know, money it doesn't invent things. It's the no. lack of it. <laughs> you know, it's like. You, you know, I could buy the best or, and that's, I've said it, I mean, to get to home theater, I've said it uh, many times on this podcast, our home theaters are that, I mean, we're all trying to come up with ways to make the best theater experience in a place that shouldn't have a theater in it. Well, as a, cl a classic example, I mean, I'm not talking about home cinema. I'm going to talk about hi-fi here. A friend of mine I've known since school has got a hi-fi and it's probably about 10,000 pounds. Um, but he has spent years putting it together, finding the right speakers, the right amps, you know, the right transport, the right record deck, the right speaker cable, the right speaker stands, setting the room up properly. And I'd say it's probably one of the best sounding hi-fis I've ever heard. And it costs less than 10,000. And yeah, you know, I've seen people with million pound systems and they sound absolutely yeah. crap. And it's like, yeah, and there's this guy who's got a modestly, you know, some people quite an expensive system, but right. you know, in the grand scheme of things, quite a cheap system. And to me, that is the best sounding hi-fi system. I still, I still go up and listen to it now when I want to try stuff on it. Because I was like, it's, it's that good. Um, yeah, because yeah. it, it, it works. Because it's been put together with love, understanding. Yeah, yeah. it's not just throwing a load of money at something. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, yeah. Oh. I mean, if you if you do it right, if you understand what you're doing, it does. It, it shouldn't cost you a fortune at home cinema. You know, no. It's certain certain fundamentals. You know, you, you know, you spend spend the money on the best display you can get. You know, um, once but you know what that is, yes. Yeah, but necessarily, <laughs> necessarily, the most expensive display isn't necessarily the best one. Um, right. Yeah, you know, it's like you can buy a phenomenally expensive projector, and it's not necessarily, not necessarily the best projector. It depends um, on your space. It depends yeah. on there's a there's a million factors. I had somebody on once, and they're like, if 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 you ask somebody what's the best projector I can get, and they give you an answer, don't listen to that person because yeah. to answer that question, they should be asking you more questions. <laughs> it's like if they already know that it, like if they give you an answer right away they're wrong <laughs> it's like because they don't know your space yet the thing i always say about equipment and people always like because I, I remember in some forum i was shouting down it's like always go and listen to it always go and test it go and try yeah. it try it until the, if you're going to spend a lot of money on something try it until the wheels fall off yeah because you're going to have to live with that you know don't buy something just because somebody said it was good 
Yeah, right. lots of people like things that I don't like. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to like it. Every time yeah. anybody says something is going to be quite good, I go and listen to it. Oh, it's not that great. You know, it, 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 you've got to, you've got to live with it yourself. It's like it's a personal thing. You know, exactly. Some, some people, some people may not like. Yeah, you know, certain speakers. Some people may not like the sound from some speaker. It might be too, too. You know analytic for them they might want something slightly warmer something slightly more comforting to make them you know or some people might like the detail you know some people might like brash things more some people might like things that are let you know it, there is no hard and fast you know, rules it's like yeah when we set up a screening for a, a premiere what we're trying to do actually is is replicate what's been done in the mixing room which is basically at the end of the day is how it sounds is in the mix and uh, very very we've never ever really come close to ever replicating what you get in the mix it's very very hard it's like it's 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 always like diluted it's like you go to a mixing theater and it is incredible that's how it sounds it's like that's it it's like yeah you're convinced everything works you know all the surrounds work perfectly everything sounds incredible the enveloping the you know the holographic uh, um sound projection is is perfect you know, the bass is tight, it's accurate, it's not in your face, it's not, you know. And then you go to somewhere else and you try really hard to try and reproduce that and you can't. Which is why, right. going back to ref reference level, literally in a premiere, we'll sit there in the premiere with a Dolby remote and basically ride the, ride the fader up and down throughout the film, um, turning it up and down. Because literally, you know, you, you're trying to give a, a good reproduction. You don't want it too loud in places, you don't want it too quiet. So literally you have to keep turning it up and down because it's never going to match how it was in the um in the mix so um, you're yeah. saying like you're in a premiere like that they're running a mix board like well, like when you go to it like i'm looking at I, like what you just said i'm picturing in my head that like you go to a concert and if you're if you're up above or something you happen to look down and you'll see that guy way at the backside of wherever this concert is right say you're in an, an arena type place and they're running a mix board. They're running like they want the vocals to be louder here. They'll push the vocals. They want that. You know, it's a guitar solo. They'll push that, you know, up. Yeah, they can do all of that. So are you saying that at a premiere of a movie, they're actually manipulating the mix, a mix board type deal? So no, to no, give you a better presentation, you're just controlling the master volume level up and down. You have, you have okay. make this thing with Dolby remote. It's like a little tiny box with a, a knob on the front and it says Dolby right. and it's got a little thing and it shows you what, you know, cause seven is the, the, the ref, basically what several is, the reason several is seven is called the reference level is cause it's what is known as unity. So basically what goes in comes out. It's neither, neither louder or quieter than the original. Supposedly. Okay. Right. Um, so, you know, um, so you'll sit there. I mean, Dolby make a fortune providing engineers to sit. Yes. Yeah, so you sit in what is the golden seat in the premiere subtly in your, you know, nicest, finest clothes, subtly holding the, 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 um, fader in your hand without anybody seeing it. Well, yeah. You've rehearsed it beforehand, but turning it subtly up and down, you know, the funniest, the funniest event ever was, um, when we did Hugo, the premiere of Hugo, yeah. um, cause that's 3d and there was a shot in that that just does not work at the end. And literally, it makes your eyes cross. And it was really funny because I was sitting there watching for it. I was waiting for the audience to scream. I thought, I'm making Prince Charles's eyes hurt here. This is quite funny. He's going to get cross eyed at this. Um, yeah. And it, 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 it's like literally, yeah, you, you try as hard as you can to reproduce how it was in the mix, but you, it, it's almost nigh and impossible. 
Right. Yeah. Once once it leaves the the mixing theater, yeah, it's going to be diff- everywhere. It's going to be different. There's going to be less bass, more bass. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, brighter treble, more detail. Um, yeah. You know, so what the message I'm getting, and I, I have tried to relay this over the years is that it's nice to tweak our systems. It's nice to work towards perfection, but don't, don't let that be a, de- a detractor. Don't think that your, your system isn't good enough because you're never getting there. You're never going to enjoy what you have because there's always something way better. We're never getting to that perfect place of the mixing room to your point. So it's like, it's like, set it to where you like it and en- and enjoy it yeah i mean i mean you take you take like like delane lee delane lee's new mixing theater or you take the eastwood um stage at warner brothers i mean they're like 10 million dollar rooms i mean you know i mean okay the, 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 the yeah the, the the desk in it you know is it costs more money than you could ever possibly imagine yeah the, the room has been set up to so that you can sit there and make artistic um, decisions so you can make you know um but you you know most people's home cinemas are probably better than 90 95 percent of all cinemas most cinemas are actually you know they do the job and that's about it they're basically glorified pa systems right yeah very few of them are high fidelity um yeah i'm not really really sure exactly what High fidelity back in the day had a certain definition. It was 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. Well, now all sound systems are easily 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. So, yeah, everything is, meets that sort of um, definition of high fidelity. Um, but, you know, you, you, you can spend an awful lot of time. Yeah, it's like literally, it's something that you feel comfortable watching. Yeah, yeah. it's like you did you enjoy it yeah the thing is i always used to say this it's like you know are you watching the film or the movie you know if you can see them if you can see the mechanism not the message then you, something's gone wrong you know right. if, if Oppenheimer, you suddenly start noticing that the aspect ratios are changing and you're suddenly noticing it's going softer or sharper then actually the film's not working yeah right. you should it's like a visual effect got really annoyed me recently um well not recently a couple of months ago when i said actually the best visual effect shot is when you know there's no visual effect shot well that's not very good is it you know i like people to see what i've done it's like no no the best visual effect shot is when nobody knows it's there exactly exactly if you notice it's there then they failed because it's yeah. supposed to be a visual effect meaning like i tricked you yeah. <laughs> not like i see what you did there oh damn <laughs> it's like yeah. a bad magician <laughs> But it's like, it, it, yeah, it's like literally I always used to say, if you can see the mechanism, then something's gone wrong. Because literally, the thing is with your ears as well, your ears will actually re-cue themselves. Unlike your eyes, your ears actually will adjust yes. themselves. Right? You go into a cinema and you go, God, that's quite harsh. By the end of the movie, you won't be really, you won't be thinking it's as harsh because your brain will have actually re-cued it. Yes, um, absolutely. Brain is it, amazing at doing that. Yeah. If I get up first thing in the morning and go down to my theater and put it to my what I consider reference level. I put it to the same volume every time. 6 a.m. in the morning, you're like, oh, my God, that's loud. But like five minutes in, you're like, oh, OK, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, you, everything's fine. Yeah, you, you try going to a mix at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'll have lunch. 
<laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it's like literally. I, I only like going to final mixes. I mean, it's like going. I mean, going to any mix, it's like literally forward and back, forward and back, forward and back. It's like God, how many times are you going to watch the same bit over and over again? Are we going to move forward, forward yeah. and back, forward and back? Yeah. Is there a is, like, oh. is there a time when they finally just go? I can't. I can't. Like. My my art, different art instructors, they all end up saying the same thing. You're working on something and they're like, you got to move on. You can only because yeah. you can work at something so hard and you actually you if you if you put so much effort into something, you can actually get past the point of where yeah. it was good. And now you're going now you're ruining it. And that that's that's the difficult thing to do. They could actually work. You know what I mean? Artistically. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it, 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 the schedule, yeah, very few people are not limited by the schedule. So the schedule says you have to get so much done a day because otherwise you get behind schedule. You get behind schedule, you get a nasty email the next morning going, what's going on? You know, most people don't realize on a, on a big movie, literally every night, you know, you send a whole load of reports off to numerous people at the studios who are analyzing how much has been done, what's been achieved, what's been spent, who did this, who did that, you know, who slowed who down. And then the next morning you get a whole lot of instructions like that person's not to show up again. Oh, jeez. Um, you know, cause it, it, it's like, it, it literally is like going to war. It's like literally you have an objective and you have to meet it. Um, yeah. you know, uh, it, um, yeah, there's very few directors. I mean, like, you know, um, Stanley Kubrick supposedly, yeah, I did 102 takes of, um, when the guy, the prison guard spits on um, Malcolm McDowell's face in Clockwork Orange, and and, and um, supposedly Sir Malcolm like that. Well, yeah, he was, very, he was really. He basically he said, "What's wrong with you, Stanley?" And he supposedly he demonstrated to Stanley. He said, "Look, yeah, what's wrong with you?" And he spat on somebody, and, and Stanley went, "That's exactly what I want." And it's like, "Oh, Christ, we've got to do it again." <laughs> so, oh. but, I mean, there's very few people that, yeah, like. Kubrick was a, I mean, he, he was a master of, his, all, all his films were very cleverly, um, you know, virtually, virtually, virtually everybody's working for nothing on a Kubrick film. So I could manage to, to um, do some work so long hours because it was like a, a labor of love to work with um, Stanley, not a, um, you know, nobody was yeah. making any money. Um, except him, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, hey. But, uh, oh. no, it's, it, yeah, you've got, you, you, you've got to know when you've got to know when you, you literally because a lot of times when you try and do something you can you can actually pass the point where it's actually any good and then sometimes you have to go back on yourself right you have to go back because suddenly like halfway it was two-thirds of the way through you actually got it perfect and you got to get back to where right where it was um but as i yep. said it's like uh, most people who have never ever been involved with filmmaking filmmaking is like watching paint dry it is the most tedious process ever I mean, you, yeah, you see the final construction of a film together, and it's incredible. It's exciting. It's visual. Yeah, you watch all those components. I mean, when we did Mission Impossible Three, I remember we did hours of takes of this girl getting out of the Lamborghini. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we, we, we did about two hours of this girl getting out of a Lamborghini. It's like, well, mm. at what point is you know? Um, I remember there could be worse things to watch. What was it? Um, <laughs> Um, it was it was it was it was quite it was quite amusing to watch but there was um um 
uh, oh god, I'm trying to think of the, the the second unit director's name on um, brilliant uh, uh, Vic Armstrong. Vic Armstrong basically had had, it, had a, was a bit annoyed with Tom Cruise, so it's really funny. He made him do this thing running up a wall. Um, I think we did it twelve times, and this is like running up a two hundred foot, one hundred and fifty, two hundred foot wall. And like every time Tom's doing it, like with the greatest gusto, with his dialogue as he's oh. running up, using this new thing called the flight head, which was a gyro stabilized Russian headset, tracks Tom perfectly up the side of this wall. And we did it about 12 times, and it's really funny because every time Tom's giving it his best, except for the last one, and Tom's going, Right, that's it. <laughs> that's. <laughs> oh, so, God. That's awesome. Yeah, that, um, but I, I've got to, you got to admire, yes, there are people like, yeah, like Tom Cruise who really give it 150%. You know, they, they really, they really do. And yeah, it's people like, you know, Chris Nolan gives it 150%. Yeah, Cameron, they, they, James Cameron, Cameron Spielberg. James, they, I mean, Spielberg, yeah. well, Sp- Sp- Spielberg is interesting. Spielberg's one of the few people who can actually make it up as he goes along. Spielberg will turn up a few hours earlier than everybody else and plan it out in his head. Um, most people will spend hours storyboarding it, working out. Stephen will just walk through the set, working it out beforehand, and then basically he knows exactly what he's doing. And then he's got the almost like autodidactic memory, and then he knows exactly what he's doing and follows it all through the day. The thing I'll say about every Spielberg film I've ever been involved with, it always comes in ahead of schedule and under budget. Is that because he? it's just in his head? It's in his head. But also, I think post Jaws, I think he never wanted that reputation of ever being, um, you know. What about Jurassic Park, though? That was a um, that was almost Jaws esque. Yeah, the issues just, that they I, had I, filming that. I think that. Well, I think it's mainly because. Well, that's yeah. Again, that was like you know beyond things beyond um, control, wasn't it? Because there was bad weather in a way that, that destroyed a lot of the set. Yeah, and uh, I mean there were a lot of people saying they could do things they weren't sure if they could do talking about the effects department i mean there was a lot of stuff going on with that movie that and and a lot like jaws right because they they're trying to get the shark to work they couldn't get that to work and then you end that's why i said like jurassic park and jaws are i mean and they're like what 10 years uh no about 15 years apart and you have almost the same issues going on in in all of them yeah in both of them I wasn't really involved with. I was. I was. I was involved with the more fun film. Um, you know, uh, Schindler's List, which, oh, which was, that was. Um, yeah, he. What he? He didn't shoot them at the same time. They were shooting they, Schindler's they, they, while they, they were wrapping up Jurassic. Right. They overlapped. Basically, he was doing post production yeah. on Jurassic while he was doing. So basically, he was yeah. doing remote grading with Ivan Luca in uh, yeah. Auschwitz. Um, and you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ashworth is something else, but I mean, it's certainly a place that you know. If you, if you go to, that you you certainly get a new respect for humanity. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, I mean, Oppenheimer's not quite, but it was almost like um, Schindler's List because Schindler's List is one of the films where you come out of it and it's like you're stunned. Yes, you know. I would say there's much more silver lining in Oppenheimer than there was in Schindler's List. Uh, well, Sh- Schindler's List, Spielberg. <laughs> Crank, cranks up the emotional thing there by having all the survivors oh. walking over the hill, which 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 literally, if anybody hadn't broken oh. by that point, was like literally he just went he went he went for the he went for blood completely to 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 oh. make people see this at the end, and that that is you know something yeah. else. Yes, um, absolutely. But I mean that yeah again that's that's another film where 
perfection. Like all the um, the co- the only color sequence in the film, which is the little girl in the red coat. Yeah, um, that was all hand cut in. So literally, a woman called um, uh, Mo. Uh, she's a very famous neg cutter. Um, she was flown around the world to everywhere where the prints would be made and hand cut in um, all the color sequences to every print. Wow. Um, you know, she's um, you know, it, it's 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 a you know, a lot of films it's a labor of love. Um, it's about oh, trusting. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like literally it's all about trusting people. So when you, you see, you wonder why filmmakers always work with the same people or tend to work quite a lot with the same people. It's because you, yeah, you, you create, you, you actually, you trust somebody, you, you believe yeah. that they can deliver it. You know, it's like, yeah, a, you know, you, you've literally, you've only got a short period of time. You know, you may have been planning a film for 10 years, but technically you've only got like, you know, right. 15 weeks, eight weeks, 20 weeks. I don't know, depending on what the budget is to make something. So you've got to, um, yeah, you're putting your life on the line, so you want people that you can trust. People aren't going to give you yeah. a hard time. Um, exactly. I mean, it's a lot like what you said before about like location shooting, and yeah. it's like, why do they go back to the same location? It's smoothed out. We got permits. We know the area. We can do it. It's just, and again, you're under a time constraint too. So, what? How smooth can we do this? And getting back to your breaking mm. into the industry, that's why it's so hard to do, is because nobody trusts you yet. How, you got to get in to get trusted. It's a catch 22. They don't, you, you got to be in for somebody to learn to trust you, but nobody's going to trust you because they don't have time. They're trying to make a movie. Well, it's like, it's like where I live, just by where I live, um, Russell Square. Have you seen the film The Flash? The new Flash? Yeah. The new Flash, yeah. Well, that was all shot in England. The whole film was shot in England. Um, but where Barry's laboratory is, is a place called Senate House, which is just off Russell Square. And you walk past there every day, and there'll be a different film crew shooting at Senate House, doing a di- you know another film. You know, literally, yeah. it's almost like literally, almost like permanent permanent parking at that place of a film crew because you know Senate House has been in so many films. I mean, the bit where Barry's trying to go through the wall is just actually inside the entrance of Senate House. Um, oh wow! So anybody who's in London and they want to see where the Flash was shot, just just go to Russell Square and walk through Senate House. Um, <laughs> It's a beautiful building, very, very beautiful Art Deco building. Nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, locations are a funny thing. It's like you, you go back to the Flash. It's like you look at that, and it's quite, it's quite funny. It's like the, the bit at the end where um, George Clooney turns up. They obviously ran out of momentum because nobody bothered to change the British traffic lights that are in the background. And it's like, oh, God, this oh, yeah. shot. The, the bit where he's walking down the steps of the, I suppose, whatever it is, is actually St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, and they've made it look like something else. So it's like, come down to Paul's Cathedral, looks about, and they've obviously, um, looking down Fleet Street, and they've digitally put in a background of somewhere else. But they, the, the traffic lights, they haven't changed, and they're British traffic lights. Um, <laughs> it was a thing, because like, Rubik was such a perfectionist, but the thing that always irritated me, and I never got a straight answer out of him, was in Full Metal Jacket, when they're on Paris Island, when they're doing the, the running around, doing the um, the runs, they're running along, and there's British road markings on the roads, and it's like, well, it's so not obviously not America because it's got British road markings. Oh yeah, yeah. no, I've um, I've seen stuff like that in movies. I don't know, maybe it was that one, but I've seen stuff like that in movies too, where it's just like, it, if you know, and again, if you're noticing that stuff, you've been taken out of the movie, and, or yeah. did that take you out of the movie because you happen to notice it? Which I know that's a trigger for Steve, you know, anything in Spain. Well, in, it's, 
nice wide shot. There's a shot of the crew um, in a reflection in the shower sequence. And literally, when they showed the rushes, everyone's panicking because it's like, oh, God, how come nobody saw this? How come somebody... And, and, uh, interesting. Nobody's looking at that. <laughs> well, Kubrick, Kubrick watched it and he turned around to everybody and he, uh, everyone was waiting for him to get ballistic. Anyways, we're all getting old. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh. So Peter, a friend of mine, Peter Hanford, told me a story when they were shooting Frenzy. They are watching the rushes and you can see a reflection in the taxi glass. Peter Hanford and Hitchcock sitting in the back of these taxis they're filming. What's his name? And everyone's sort of looking around Hitchcock and Hitchcock goes, of course everybody knows there's a bloody sound man in the film. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, John, I could, I mean, you're definitely coming back to do Big Bang Theory because that's, yeah, that, I'd not be, I'll, be, I'll be falling asleep to that shortly. Yeah, I, 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 not shortly for me, but I, I will as well in a few hours on my side of the pond. But I've just got, I've just got, I've just got to the bit where, um, I, uh, our friend, um, what's his name? The English director, the English guy I was talking with, gone full circle here back to, um, um ricky gervais's friend um the, the the english actor who's in it who plays the english guy that amy farrah fowler's dating amy oh, yeah, yeah 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 it's, it's just it's just got back together with sheldon i said i love i love that whole bit yeah i mean i, I just imagine that because i just love the bit where he, where they spy on him in the restaurant and he comes out the restaurant and um leonard just been to piss in a bottle and the guy says, let me shake your hand. He goes, you don't want to do that. And he goes, oh, my God, this is Leonard Hofstad. I'm never going to wash this hand again. He goes, I think you're going to want to. <laughs> it's so great. It's, oh, man. I love, uh, again, we can do, we, I, we're, you're coming back for that. Uh, and, and many more. I mean, we got so much well, else you, to sir. talk thank about. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was fun. Yeah, I, you know, I, I I love hearing positive things about movies. As I said, there's too many negative things on YouTube about how everything's falling apart. It's like, well, actually, there's so much good out there. You know, oh, I mean, every week there's great films coming out on Blu-ray. And, hey, and even the crappiest movie, they had the best intentions when they were making it. You know, no one goes out to make a bad movie. As, as, no, um, no. as, as uh, Penny says in The Big Bang Theory, let's try and put a, make, make something we're proud of with the killer gorilla. <laughs> so great. Oh man, John! Thank you so much. This has been a blast. Time flew. Um, oh, thank you, and, sir. Thank you, and you look after yourself and safe journeys. Same to you and uh, everybody out there. Go push play. Thank you. Go push play. Hey, Fred. This has been a Hey Fred production with theme music by Jeff Bernhardt and Throne Vault Productions.